This is the voice of the Report of the Week, signing on. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone listening in to this newest podcast. Welcome, one and all. I hope, anyway, for this show to be going out Thursday, the 27th of May, 2021. Fingers crossed for it, anyway. I know sometimes I have these dates, I hope for it, and it just doesn't work out, but if not Thursday, then Friday, but hopefully Thursday. And speaking of hoping this and that, I hope you're doing all right. Hope you're feeling all right. So uh, we've got a pretty decent show for you, I think, anyway. I uh, I normally record the beginning of these programs last, so then at least I know what I've done. I know what topics I've talked about and discussed, and it gives me an easier perspective as to the rest of the show. Honestly, I wish that this episode could have been a little longer. I wasn't able to get to every single email that I wanted to, um, because I just started feeling really, just not not the best physically toward the end of this, and I had to kind of cut it short a bit. But it's still a decent length, you know, for a program. Whatever I couldn't get to in this show, I'll certainly try to get to in the next. I think this is going to be a good variety of topics, of course. Uh, This program, it's not all positive, it's not all negative. You just kind of get, you get what you get. And I try to just cover a a wide variety of topics, especially those suggested by listeners. So a huge thank you to everyone out there who uh, did correspond and send in questions and topic suggestions, etc. For those of you who are watching this program on the YouTube, I do want to give a few shout-outs for those who submitted fan art. We'll talk about that a little more in a couple minutes. There are four pieces of fan art in in today's show. The first piece is credited to Chloe, whose work can be found on the website DeviantArt with the username Jeffrey Ryman. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. R-H-Y-M-A-N. There is no space there. The second piece is credited to Vitrexi, who said, I tried to make you look like a cat. The third piece is credited to a Twitter user whose profile could be found by searching Alan876. That's A-L-E-N-876. And the fourth piece is credited to Joe. If you'd like to submit a piece of fan art, if you are feeling creatively inclined, uh, it could be anything that you want it to be. That's the whole point of art. So do whatever you want. Just submit it to me via email at v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. Please let me know how you would like to be credited. Just attach it as an email attachment and send it my way, and I'll try to get it featured for you in the next show I do. And on one other note, if you enjoy this broadcast and you want to hear more of it, please consider a donation. Just recently I had to pay a very major expense, which at least it covered things in in a certain aspect for this broadcast up until 2023, um, but it, it wasn't cheap. It cost a lot. Anything does help. This is the only time in the entire show I'll even be asking for anything. 
So it's up to you. If you do want to support it, a donation via PayPal is welcome to V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com or via Patreon at patreon.com slash the report of the week. You can also advertise on this program by promoting a good, a service, an online website, a profile, music, whatever it is, anything under the sun. If you do want to advertise, it could certainly be beneficial for both this show and for you as well. If you want more information on advertising, again, just send me a quick email to vorwinfo at gmail.com. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy the broadcast. This is VORW. The Running Jump podcast aims to give people interested in running the jump they need to get started in running. Each episode features lessons for runners and answers to listener emails. While the podcast is geared toward newer runners, plenty of the information will be used for intermediate and advanced runners as well. Recent episodes discussed getting started with running, the unexpected benefits from running, and dealing with the anxiety of people watching you run. The Running Jump podcast can be heard on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, and Audible. Give it a listen if you are interested in picking up running. Once again, that's the Running Jump podcast. Make sure you check them out. Have you ever found yourself lost in the woods? Forest to your back, and the rugged peaks of Mount Rainier looming over you? If so, you might have found yourself in the tiny little town of Wilkeson, Washington. If that's the case, and you find yourself in need of refreshment, step on into the doors of the Carlson Block, where the proprietors will make certain to satisfy every desire for food or drink. Serving the finest, naturally leavened sourdough pizza one could seek to find, and the coldest beverages fit to consume. Do you like cheese? They pull it every morning. Do you desire crispy, curly peps? Theirs do. Do you enjoy spicy fennel sausage? They mix it every day. Using only the finest local organic produce and flour to make their pizza, it's sure to satisfy. The major regional daily, the Seattle Times, declared the Carlson Block to be the best pizza in the state of Washington. Let your taste buds decide. So when you find yourselves lost in the woods and you're in need of a hot meal, you might not be too far from the Carlson Block, where strangers are treated like family and families come to enjoy each other. Check out their website, www.carlsonblock.com, that's C-A-R-L-S-O-N-B-L-O-C-K.com, carlsonblock.com for more information, and also check out their Instagram page at carlsonblock on Instagram, or at Ian Niles Galbraith, that's I-A-N-N-I-L-E-S, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H. Again, on Instagram. If you're out there in Washington State and you want some delicious pizza, give it a shot. You won't regret it. Now, as a quick message uh, for some of our sponsors, fine folks who help keep this show going. Uh, There were a few short topics I just wanted to kind of rapid-fire bring up, almost a uh, question, too. 
And then we'll just get into the mailbag show. Uh, so I guess in the last show, a lot of people were wondering, they were sending me emails, they were saying about the teeth. The teeth, what, what, what happened? You were talking about the dental work and your dental anxieties and all that. How'd that go over? Uh, it actually it went over better than I thought. But the situation in and of itself was not great either. Um, no extractions needed anyway, so that's a thumbs up there. That was my biggest fear. And at least that worked out for the best. The one tooth that I was really worried about uh, was able to be saved. There's a nice crown on it now. And everything is good. It's good to go. I can chew on it normally, and it's fantastic. Uh, the thing is, the dentist told me, look, if you had waited even a month, uh, the tooth might not have been salvageable. So you came at the right time, and I'm glad I did. Otherwise, uh, the other two teeth, you know, got the crowns that they needed put on as well. That worked out. And then they started working on another molar uh, in terms of preparing it for a crown. And we all knew that underneath one of the big old uh, metal fillings, there's a little bit of decay under the filling that was never originally cleared up years ago. We didn't know how far down it went. Uh, unfortunately for that tooth, the decay is far down uh, to the point that it does require a root canal, and because it is a molar, I need to go over to the endodontist. It's just something that I have to do. What more can I say? I've been there before. This guy knows what he's doing. He is an expert. And uh, I'll just have to make the phone call and get it done at some point. But otherwise, it was a lot of work. I was there for a number of hours. And honestly, what hurt more than any of that, because they really numbed me up real good. My teeth are fine in terms of pain or any of that. They're totally fine. But I had to keep my jaw open for so long uh, that... It's just, it's been very, very sore for a good number of days subsequently because of that, you know, because it's just in a position that it wouldn't necessarily be in, you know, under normal circumstances, being open that wide for that long a time. So there's a lot of soreness, and of course, with that, eating and talking does hurt because of those movements, but, you know, it'll get better with time, that I am confident. So the dental work, I mean, you know, we're getting the ball rolling again, getting it done as best I can. And uh, some good news, some bad news, no real surprises, though, which I suppose that's that's the best thing I could ask for. I don't want to be surprised. <laughs> Just want it to be straightforward and I, I get what I get. So that's the dental update. In the past couple weeks, a lot of folks wanted me to address the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, but considering that there is the ceasefire now, I thought it was a very, very fragile ceasefire, but it seems to have actually held, which is good to see. Uh, I just don't really know what more there is to say about it that we don't already know. Uh, this is one of those situations that it's a very complicated one, and I think we all know that. We know that the whole Israel-Palestine conflict is not something that's only been going on you know, in the last year or anything. It's one of those very long-standing uh, ethnic, religious, territorial disputes, you name it, that 
I just think it's it's never going to end. It'll have periods where it really ramps up, then it's going to die down again, then it'll ramp back up. Um, but there are many, many issues, and that's just all that I can really say. I mean, what what more is there to say? Any loss of life is a horrible thing. And all of the death and destruction is is always sad to see. So I just don't really know what more there is to actually say about it that hasn't been said already a thousand times over. It's, I'm glad to see that the ceasefire held. Again, it's very, very fragile. Um, but it seems like it will continue to hold, probably for a bit. Give it some time, though, and unfortunately another reason will emerge for fighting to to uh, reconvene. It's just how this is. It's how it always has been. It's how it's going to be. And on one other note, um, this is a recent subject. This is actually... So I'm finishing up this show on the 26th of May. And obviously, hopefully this will be going out the 27th, but I think this is still relevant. I know I've said before that when it comes down to the correspondence that comes in, uh, it's always nice, you know, that I'm able to discuss non-food related subjects because the other channel, the Report of the Week, you know, is the food review channel. And it's nice to discuss things different. But I I did have a question, and this isn't... I don't really know the answer to it. This is just something I want to ask you. But it was a question that came about, and I thought, well... I don't know, I wonder what, uh, what people think about this stuff. So, the other day I did a review of a McDonald's meal... And, you know, statistically speaking, the video seems to be doing good. I mean, it certainly has a a good level of interest, especially in comparison to some other reviews I've recently done. So far, of the last 10 reviews I did, this one is the most viewed. So definitely, people have interest in this subject. And the other two times this did happen... Um, both were met, you know, statistically with positive results. But McDonald's has released another brand new celebrity meal. And what that is, this has been a fairly recent trend starting in mid to late 2020, where McDonald's essentially assembles a meal, a celebrity, usually some A-list music star, uh, kind of puts their name on it, endorses it, and it leads to a huge increase in sales for McDonald's because all of this, all of the celebrities' fans and supporters now want to flock over to get the special meal. Uh, for instance, in 2020, we had the Travis Scott meal, which was like a glorified quarter-pounder hamburger, some fries and a drink, and then you also had the J Balvin meal, and J Balvin is a famous uh, singer, especially in South America, which was really just a Big Mac. <laughs> I think that was it. But now in 2021, there is a new meal out, the BTS meal. And BTS, you know, they're the famous uh, South Korean boy band that has many, many international hits. Uh, even a few English language uh, songs that I think topped the charts here in the U.S., especially Dynamite, and then a new song called Butter, 
those two, very, very uh, popular here in the States. And their meal is really some chicken nuggets with two new sauces. One of the sauces is sweet chili, and the other is a Cajun sauce. But this just got me thinking, and this is just one of those things that I uh, couldn't really ask in the review because it's a bit time-consuming, and uh, I don't know, people aren't really tuning in to that for me to ask these sorts of questions. They just want to know what it tastes like. Um, but this is just my question to anyone who, who wants. I mean, what do you think of these celebrity meals? I mean, like, how does it how does it make you feel to... Do you have any views? Do you support these celebrity-endorsed meals? Do you think that it's uh, tacky? Do you think that it's cringy? Do you think that it's just kind of too in-your-face, you know, over-the-top corporate stuff? you think it's artificial? Or do you like it? You know, is it kind of nice to see some of your favorite uh, musicians, etc., kind of branch out to other things and... It feels good to be able to support them in this way, and maybe it feels like you're connecting more with them because you could eat their favorite <laughs> McDonald's meal or something. Like, I don't know. The way I feel about them, I don't really have any particular view one way or another. It's just like, all right, this is a celebrity-endorsed meal, and uh, I'm just going to gauge how it is based on how it tastes, and that's it. You know, but, like, do you think that it's low effort? Or I'm not sure. Like, does it, does it annoy you? Does it bother you? Just what do you think in general about this concept of the celebrity-endorsed meal? Obviously, it's nothing new, but it is kind of seeing a bit of a revival with McDonald's. Obviously, in terms of sales, the success is proven. But in the case, for instance, of the BTS meal... Looking around on social media, uh, there does seem to be a very definitive divide in reactions uh, as to how people feel about this. I uh, have the one camp of folks who are really excited about the BTS meal, but you also have a group of individuals who either A, think that it's just silly and overdone, or they are fans of BTS, but they feel like this meal was underwhelming and that it doesn't really connect enough to the band uh, to really be considered, you know, a BTS meal. That this is just a fast food meal with their name slapped on it. There's nothing really special about it. So, I don't know. What do you think about all these celebrity meals? You can interpret that question any way, any way you want. Uh, honestly, if you want to write in, write in. Normally, I just say I don't really... You can write in about food, but it's nice to discuss other topics, too. Uh, but this is just a question that came to mind, and I thought, eh, why not? I'll, I'll ask it since it's fresh in my mind. This is just one of those, you know, miscellaneous thoughts where I was just kind of sitting there as the video was uploading, and I was thinking, I wonder what people think about all these celebrity meals and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's, a, it's, it's marketing, you know, viral marketing, right? So uh, if you do want to submit a response as to what you think about those new meals... Uh, feel free to let me know your thoughts. You could write as much or as little as you want. You can write in at v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. Uh, likewise, now, we're going to be getting into the mailbag program. Uh, that is really a self-explanatory name. For the remainder of this broadcast, I'm going to be opening up the email, 
and I'm going to read whatever feedback comes in. It's a good opportunity if you have a question for me, a topic you would like to hear discussed, or anything you would like to share with me and the listening audience, this is the time and place to do it. There is a blank slate. There is no set topic. If you want to write in again about the celebrity meals, go for it. But if you have questions about suits or shortwave radio or geopolitical affairs, or if there's something that you saw and you want to share and mention, if you want to talk about compressed air or bad drivers or ducks or socks or anything in between, uh, you're more than welcome to do that too. You can keep your email as long or short as you wish. You could write in as frequently or infrequently as you'd like also. Um, But the more correspondence that does come in, the more varied a show uh, that is kind of guaranteed. So please don't hesitate to correspond. It's always such a pleasure to hear from listeners. So uh, do consider it. You can reach me at VORW. I-N-F-O at gmail.com Before you send the email, please double-check the address and make sure you are sending it to V-O-R-W I-N-F-O at gmail.com But I hope you can correspond. It would be a pleasure to hear from you, so please consider it. Uh, I guess before we start up the uh, mailbag show, just on a quick schedule note, um, if you do want to listen into my radio show, it is a completely different entity than this podcast. It's a one-hour show. I do four new radio shows a week, every week. You can hear it on the international shortwave frequency of 5850 kilohertz. That's 5.850 MHz. At the time of 10 p.m. Eastern, that's 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Pacific, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evening. It's a show where I could comfortably discuss topics that maybe I can't online. I balance things out with some music as well. It's just a fun, didactic mixture of some information and entertainment. Some other opportunities to listen in on shortwave, 6115 kHz at 6 p.m. Eastern every Saturday, 4840 kHz at midnight Eastern every Monday. That's 11 p.m. Central every Sunday. You could also listen in on the AM radio on radio station WNQM AM 1300 in the Nashville, Tennessee area at 3 a.m. Eastern every Saturday morning. On radio station WITA 1490 AM at 9 p.m. Eastern every Saturday evening for listeners in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, and on radio station KYAH 540 AM for the state of Utah at the time of 12 p.m. Eastern, that's 10 a.m. Mountain, every Saturday morning. So that's just how you could tune in over the radio. If you want to get a shortwave radio or have any questions about radio or shortwave radio, I love answering them. It's a pleasure. I, I'm very passionate about this medium, so I'll happily help you out. Uh, so send in a question, if you want, to the email address that I've mentioned many a time before. And with that, dear listeners, sit back, relax, and enjoy the mailbag show, because I know I already said sit back, relax, but I guess I'll... Second time's a charm, right? Enjoy the show. This is VORW. All right, so like I've said in the past... I think I say this in every single show, pretty much. 
Uh, we have a good amount of emails lined up. Right now, at least, at the start of this recording, we have about 70. I think we're exactly on the button. 70 emails. We'll try to get to what we can. Uh, I may have to take... the <laughs> Hell, I do this already, so what does it matter in the end, right? <laughs> Why even address it, you know? What's the point? Well, I guess I'll do it anyways. It's just like one of those silly things. I guess I'm just searching for stuff to talk about, but I have 70 emails here to talk about, so what am I doing? I was just saying I'll probably have to take some breaks here and there, um, due to the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, that dental work, it still hurts because I've had my jaw. I guess I, I don't know, it just hurts from being open so much, and obviously it hurts to talk because you need to move your jaw to talk and to eloquate oneself. If that's a real word, I don't know if it is or isn't. But either way, I take breaks anyway, even when I'm not in pain, so what does it matter? <laughs> why even why even address that? Who knows? Anyway, let's pick an email, any email, and uh, just go from there. We've got questions, we've got comments, we've got topic suggestions, and everything in between. Took a little bit of a sip of water, and uh, let's just find an email and go from there. James, in Somerset, UK. I don't have anything particularly interesting to add to the show at this moment, but I've been listening to the podcast quite a lot and just wanted to say how much I appreciate your output. I find it equal parts soothing, interesting, and refreshing. And I also admire your ability to have pushed through the negativity you have received from various pits of the internet, continuing to do exactly what you want when lesser men may have shriveled. The world is certainly a better place with your voice in it. I wish you good fortune, and long may you continue into the future. Kind regards from James. Well, thank you, James, for your kind words. I really appreciate it, and uh, I, think, I think you're too kind, James. Thank you. A short other comment coming in from Ryan, saying, Hello, John. Still listening to all of your podcasts. Listening to the latest one as I compose this message. Your podcasts have brought me peace and relaxation after work. And I have been watching the channel since 2014 and the podcasts since 2016, and haven't stopped since. I recently got a coffee mug of yours, and it is the main one I use. I wish you the best in your endeavors, and have... A wonderful morning, midday, or evening. Well, thank you, Ryan. Also, for your kind words, a, uh, a long-time listener there since 2016, and a viewer since 2014. Well, thank you. And I hope the coffee mug is of good quality. If it's not, please let me know. But I, I imagine, since you've been using it regularly, uh, it ha I, I assume that it is. I mean, I hope it doesn't have a giant crack in it and all the coffee leaks out or anything, so I hope it's, uh, I hope it works out nice for you. We hear from Doug in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, an interesting point he brings up. Hi, Report of the Week. I'm currently listening to the Random Talk Show and heard you talking about a lack of videos due to a slowdown in new fast food offerings. I would think that might be a good thing. 
one of my former favorite YouTubers, a bodybuilding channel, slowly came out of favor with me because he was just uploading too many videos. I truly believe there is a sweet spot to the number of videos. On a separate note, I recently came across a Sony shortwave radio. It was my brother's who passed away in 2015. He was a radio enthusiast, and I honestly think he would have enjoyed your content very much. And I have no use for it. I have a Grundig for my own shortwave purposes. Oh, there we go. I've attached a photo of it. I honestly have no idea if it works or not. Um, but if you'd like it, uh, I'll send it your way. Uh, so thank you, Doug in Pittsburgh. Uh, it is an interesting radio, Sony ICF 2002. I know of the Sony ICF 2001. I know that was a very famous radio back in the day, but hopefully the 2002 is just as good. And uh, I don't know if it would work or not. Those old radios can be hit or miss. Sometimes, you know, they're around in fantastic quality after all these years. Other times, you know, they just don't work. Um, but you can hang on to it for now or do whatever you want, but I thank you for your kind offer, Doug, and I'm sorry to hear, even though it was a number of years ago, I'm sorry for the loss. So it's an interesting point that you bring up about content, content creation, and volume thereof. Personally, I agree with you, though I would be willing to say that it, it depends on the circumstances. Although I think it's different from creator to creator, and obviously everyone's different, so some people will have uh, differing views as to what they deem too much. But obviously, for everyone, things do get to a point where it is too much, even if it is of a good thing. You know, if I were just uploading videos every 30 minutes, from now on, day and night, people would get sick of it. And I think they would begin to unsubscribe. Now, you might get some new subscribers because of the videos, but definitely some people will leave because it would just be overwhelming. Uh, I understand that. I do think that it is circumstantial, though. There are certain types of content that you would expect on a regular basis, but again, it's all due to fluctuation. You know, there's this one channel, some people will find it very, very weird, but for those of you who know that I like the legal system and all that, you know, law and police stuff and whatnot, then you might not be surprised, but there's this one channel that's from uh, one of the judicial circuits here in Florida that uploads, of all things, first appearance hearings, and every single day they upload them. And uh, I will sometimes watch them. I, <laughs> I will. It's very interesting to see the different characters that kind of... You see day-to-day -day and the different things that they're in for, etc., and just see the process. But I've been watching that for years, and, uh, you know, they upload every single day, of course, because the legal system does not stop. But I'm used to that, and that volume of content, while it may be overwhelming to some, is not in my case. But again, I know what you mean. If there is someone who only makes content usually once a week, and all of a sudden is doing video after video after video, it just gets too much. There is one channel, and I'm not going to name names, that I was subscribed to for years, I think maybe even for close to a decade, 
Although I really stopped watching the videos a good <laughs> five, six years ago, I remain subscribed to their channel out of a sense of nostalgia, perhaps. But they started doing the, uh, you know, what is it called? The shorts. The YouTube shorts, which is, you know, YouTube's version of TikTok. And they were uploading video after video after video, none of which I was watching. And it was just cluttering up space, and I said, I'm done with this. I'm just... <laughs> this, this annoyance overrules any sense of nostalgia that I once have. I am done, and I am unsubscribing, so I did. Uh, but I understand, it, there is a sweet spot. Now, again, that might be different from one channel to the next, especially in regards to what the content itself may be. But no, there definitely is, and, and you're right about that. I remember one time... I think I exceeded it a bit, but again, it, it was, well, there's two instances I'm kind of thinking of. Number one, back in 2014, I uploaded videos daily, and there was barely, at least compared to the audience today, it was much smaller, but there was, you know, a small but loyal community who was familiar with that upload schedule and uh, viewed as a result of it. So that wasn't really a big problem, but in 2018, sometimes I think I did overdo it a bit, not in terms of necessarily the content itself, but I utilized the community tab or page or whatever it's called where I can make an announcement and then that's shared to all of the subscribers. And I think I utilized that a bit too much. Um, because I remember, well, look at it this way from the perspective of a viewer. In terms of getting all of these notifications, it might be annoying. So, so look at it this way. This is how much I promoted my broadcasts back then. So let's say it's a Thursday, because back then in 2018, Thursdays were the day where I really did the radio show, because... My shortwave broadcast up until 2019 was one day a week. I would have repeats here and there, but it was really a one day per week broadcast. Now it's four days per week. But back then it was one. And Thursday was the big day. But first, it's Thursday, right? Let's, let's time travel back to 2018. It's Thursday. But first... I decided to upload a new review. So you're the subscriber, you get the notification for a review. Okay, so that's notification one. Next, it's around 1 p.m. Eastern time. There was an airing of my radio show on TuneIn. I promoted that. Second notification of the day. At 4 p.m. Eastern, there was the first shortwave airing of the day. Third notification, I made a post about that. At 6 p.m. Eastern, there was another tune-in stream and shortwave broadcast as well. So I made a post about that. Then at 8 p.m., another shortwave airing made a post for that. And then at 9 p.m., another airing and another post for that. Now that might not seem like much, but for some, six notifications in a single day is a bit overwhelming. 
And it wasn't really something that I got many complaints about, but I just got the feeling that it was maybe a bit too much. Nowadays, I still use the community page to uh, notify subscribers about certain things, but nowhere near as much as I used to. For instance, I use the community tab of the main channel, the Report of the Week, whenever I release a new podcast, which is bi-weekly, usually, give or take a couple days. So that's one notification. And then, out of maybe the 20 radio airings that I have on a seven-day period, I will maybe promote two of them with a notification, and that's it. So at a maximum, three notifications a week. Usually, it's, it's around two. And that's it. And then, once that airing is over, I delete the post, so anyone who wakes up late or whatever is maybe asleep, they don't have to deal with it anymore. That post is out of their life. They never have to see it again, and that's it. I don't want to contribute to useless clutter on people's phones or devices or any of that, so I delete it once it's no longer applicable, and uh, that's that. So I, I try to be better with that sort of stuff because I, I get it. Some things can just be... It can be too much. So thank you for your kind words and, again, your, uh, your views. Uh, this listener, there is a name, but since no name again was given in the email, I'll keep you anonymous. Hello, John. Hope all is well. On the latest podcast, I heard you were having more teeth work done, so I hope everything went smoothly. Been listening to your show for a few years now and really enjoyed it, so I figure why not start writing in? I was wondering of your thoughts on reverse seasonal affective disorder, also known as SAD. Uh, that's, you know, just to interject, for those who aren't really sure, that's a type of depression. It's mostly common people who maybe get depressed during the winter time, right? The, the changing seasons, how it's more gloomy, etc., contributes uh, to a downward uh, emotional trend and again could lead to depression cert under certain circumstances at certain times of year, usually the same time every year, normally in the winter. But reverse seasonal affective disorder. Now, continuing with your email, I don't know if you ever heard of it, but I discovered I might have it because I love it when it's a gray and rainy day. My mood is always extra happy, and I dress in brighter colors than normal. I even sleep a lot better. I don't hate on bright summer days, but I have a harder time waking up in the mornings to a bright sun. It's when it's getting more toward a late afternoon, I'm more awake, but by then it's harder to fall asleep as well because of the energy boost. And maybe it's all also part insomnia, or maybe I'm a part, part vampire. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you for your email. Uh, I wouldn't see why there couldn't be such a thing as reverse seasonal affective disorder. You know, it's not just called winter uh, seasonal affective disorder or, uh, you know, gray day <laughs> seasonal affective disorder. I think that it really could happen at any given time. And again, while it's most common during the winter months, I, I, I imagine that it would happen with, uh, you know, folks who 
feel the same about bright, sunny, you know, summer days. But obviously it's more common with the winter. I mean, I'm looking at the picture here that, I don't know if it's from Mayo Clinic, but it shows this guy sitting there on the couch and, you know, it's piles of snow outside his window. So obviously it's most prevalent with the winter, but there was a time where I thought maybe I had the seasonal affective disorder because a few years in a row, it would always get kind of bad for me in December, November, December. But I don't think it's just... Because then, you know, it would get bad in May, and, uh, well, there's no snow there. There's no dark days in that month either. So I think it was just the way things were and how it all played out. I think... You know, it just happens whenever it whenever it does, and uh, that's all there is to it. But it's a different situation for different people. You know, you can't just speak about how it is for me and assume it is that way for others. It's uh, it's just a very variable thing, of course. We have some questions coming in from Sylvester. Hello, review bra. I had a couple questions. The first one being. What are your ideas on modern witchcraft and manifesting? Do you think witchcraft is something to be afraid of? So thank you, Sylvester, for your questions. Uh, number one, right off the bat, I'm going to say that this is a subject that I am not particularly knowledgeable in at all. So I just want to say that outright. I'm not going to pretend to be some sort of authority on this and then give a ridiculous, you know, answer, uh, because I think that's just, that's, that's just not respectful. Uh, so my thoughts on it, it's not really, again, something that I have invested much, uh, you know, time into looking at. I don't think that it is necessarily something to be afraid of. At the very least, it's certainly not something that I think society at large is afraid of. Uh, obviously, it's... I always think that witchcraft is one of those Halloween tropes that is more or less seasonal as it is scary. Uh, a lot of the concept of witches aren't necessarily, you know, used as graphically horrifying as the concept of, say, zombies, right? Never really seen... I mean, obviously, there's a few outliers, I'm certain, but you never really see things with, you know, good zombies and friendly zombies. You know, usually it's things that want to tear you to shreds. Um, witchcraft, on the other hand, I, I think of it more as... I think witches are portrayed more so as neutral, if anything. Uh, yeah, there's some bad witches out there, but certainly some neutral ones, even good. And uh, more so portrayed as that, then something to be scared of. I think that's reflected in society. But of course, we're talking now almost in the historical and, uh, you know, the Hollywood portrayed witch. But in terms of how it actually is practiced, it, it's, it's just something I would need more information on. I have the most basic understanding, but that's all that I could really say. So if there, if, if it is a subject which you are well-versed on, please uh, send me some resources that I can kind of read up about. I'd be happy to. Uh, 
Uh, on a final note, and I'll, I'll get to you more in writing about this, but you said off-topic question, but I wanted to start my own broadcast. I've searched and searched around the internet on ways to do so. Uh, most of the articles have to do with AM and FM. If you could please help me with this, as I would like to make my own radio plays. Uh, thank you for taking the time to read this. I know it's a bit long, so I hope it wasn't too bothersome. Uh, so thank you, Sylvester, once again. Uh, in terms of starting your own broadcast, obviously, you know, what is it that you would like to do? Now, this is the most basic question, right? What would you like to do? By that, I mean, because obviously you know what you want to do. You want to do radio plays, which I think that's really cool. Uh, that is certainly uh, something that I always have an appreciation toward. You know, it's I, I always have respect for that. But by my original question, what do you want to do in terms of, well, how do you want this broadcast, right? Do you want it broadcast on a radio station? Do you want it broadcast online exclusively? Uh, would you like it? I mean, what are you interested in? You know, would you like it on AM radio, FM radio, shortwave radio? What type of station would you like it on? Do you want it just online? Do you want it live? Do you want it as a podcast, right? Uh, so, you know, what are you interested in there? Uh, the most basic thing I would say in terms of a radio play at least in terms of starting out, you know, this is just my unsolicited advice, uh, have them pre-recorded at first, of course. I mean, because it's something that if you want to do it live, like how they really did it in, you know, the 30s and 40s, I mean, you need to have everything worked out and it needs to be flawless. And the first few times, you know, there will be issues. And honestly, in terms of a play, you want to make sure that all of the editing is down, that you could have sound effects and background music and whatever. The delivery is smooth and all of that. So honestly, that would be something that I would recommend you record it in advance, put it together, and then get it uploaded either at a schedule or any time. Uh, but obviously, you just need the most basic resources. You'll need audio equipment to record it with. Uh, that could be something as simple as having a few microphones connected to a computer. You know, just download Audacity, that program is still going, and just have them plugged into there and record it through that. That's one way you can do it. It's very easy. Anyone could do that, really, uh, with pretty basic resources. Although, again, try to get a decent microphone, of course, within your means uh, for an audio program. You know, then assemble it, get it edited together. It's going to take some time, and there's going to be some issues at first. You know, nothing is perfect. But keep at it, you'll get the hang of it. Practice makes perfect, don't forget that. Uh, and then, of course, comes, well, what is it that you would like to do? If you want to uh, upload it as a podcast, you know, think about the sites that you want to do it via. I would certainly recommend having a little bit of a diverse variety. Um, you know, have it at a couple sites. And then really you could have an RSS feed and you could just upload it to one site or it'll just get all sent out to everything at the same time. 
you could upload it to YouTube exclusively, have it as like a YouTube podcast, kind of like what I also do with this show. That's easy, you know, you can just get the audio, there's ways easily that you can convert it to a video, get it up, and, and all's good there. So thank you, and I wish you the best of luck. This next email comes in from Jerris in Phoenix, Arizona. I tried to get your name right, and if I didn't, I'm sorry. I even saw how you said to pronounce it, and again, if I didn't, but just know I tried. <laughs> I tried sincerely. I uh, Let's see, some thoughts from a listener. I'm going to apologize for the long email. Uh, I don't want to dump my baggage out on you, but I understand uh, the mailbag show is supposed to be for listeners to share their thoughts, so here I go. Uh, to interject, absolutely, this is the place to do it, my friend, so no worries there. Uh, you're welcome to share what you wish. It's it's up to you, the listener. You have complete freedom, you know. Firstly, I'm going to discuss parasocial relationships. I understand attachments to content creators that are unhealthy, for example, stands, which creates a lot of problems online for a lot of people whose careers and lives can forever be impacted by the actions of a few people on Twitter, there is a fine line between someone with a platform encouraging their stands for someone uh, from someone who uses their platform to actually talk to their fans and connect with them. With emails such as these or other emails from people who look at you, a complete stranger that we feel somehow a kinship toward, do you feel that these represent a parasocial relationship, and if so, is it right? Uh, to be perfectly fair, I do not want to encourage parasocial relationships. I just want to be able to seek some advice from someone who is like me and has maybe more experience in the world. Uh, so now it's a two, you have a second question, but first, uh, let's get into the first one. That is an interesting one. Uh, it's certainly something that I do get reminded of every now and then. Well, I would say it depends on the... What, what's the word I'm looking for? On the context. Uh, what would one define as one and what would one constitute as one? Certainly nearly everyone listening in, pretty much, unless you are a very regular correspondent, of which there are some... I would say that's more of an exception for, like, the folks who write in multiple times a week. Then I do know you a little bit, you know? But for many folks out there who are regular listeners but either seldom or never correspond, obviously you know me better than I do. I don't even know who you are. You know, at least in some ways, who I am, but I know nothing about you. You know, it's, that, that's the thing. And I think it all depends. Sometimes I'll be reminded of the term parasocial relationships, uh, where I'll sometimes get an email from someone to paraphrase, you know. And this actually is fairly rare, but every now and then you'll hear from someone who will be saying something to the extent of, uh, you know, whatever. I, I've, I listen to you every night or whatever, and I, I view you as a friend, which is, that is touching. And, you know, it, it means a lot to know that someone actually gets something out of the content. You know, but of course it does come to mind that obviously this person feels as though they know me. I, ha I know nothing about them, and I don't know who this person is. That's why you have to be careful. 
Um, honestly, I think that many of the many parasocial relationships, I think, can be largely harmless because you have to look at it this way. Well, what do you define as a parasocial relationship? Here's what I'm saying by that. Are the people in your favorite band, right? And this is when it's used exclusively in the negative context. By this I mean the people in your favorite band. You listen to their stuff, you know the gist of their career, their beginnings, you watch interviews with them, etc. You obviously know them, they don't know you. Is that a parasocial relationship? What about everyone that you watch regularly on YouTube? What about everyone you listen to on the radio? What about everyone you watch on television? Right? What about politicians? You know, what if you're a big fan of Trump and you know all his his whole life story, or vice versa? Maybe you're a big fan of uh, Biden and you've researched his entire legislative career and you know everything about him, so you feel... Is that a parasocial relationship? Because you obviously know these politicians more than they know you. They don't know who you are. Right, so that term, I've only really seen it flung around in recent times, especially in terms of online content creators, but I don't know. The, the thing is, is that they throw it around like it's something new. I don't think it ever has been. What about all the people who were obsessed with the Beatles back in the 60s, you know? <laughs> were those all parasocial relationships, or is that only a YouTube thing? What's the difference? It's... You know what I'm getting at. I think that, at least to extents, these sorts of things exist in pretty much every single living, breathing person in the entire world. Be that someone in the United States who watches all of their favorite YouTubers, or someone, you know, living in Bangladesh who has their favorite presenters on The Voice of America and, you know, tunes into them on the shortwave every single day. I think no matter the media, these sorts of things have always existed. Favorite authors, you name it. So, you just see it flung around a lot in terms of online creators, and obviously you see these, these examples um, right, the stands, as they say. I think that the, the dangerous thing about parasocial relationships is not necessarily their nature. Now, if it turns into an unhealthy obsession, that's one thing. And that's, you know, where the lines start getting crossed. Um, but I think it's okay to be a fan of someone or something and like what they do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know? it's You have that in pretty much everyone. People like what they like. And uh, to criticize folks for saying, oh, I really like this author, I really like this guitarist, I like this YouTuber, I like this radio broadcaster. No, that's a parasocial relationship. You stop. You can't like anything. You're not entitled to enjoy a single thing in this world anymore. Uh, that's, that's silly. Like I said, if it, if it gets to an obsession, then that's dangerous. If the individual who the parasocial relationship is surrounding knows this, you know, that people feel this way and then take advantage of it to say, all right, I'm going to get these people to do this for me. I'm going to get these people to do that for me. That is human filth and despicable trash taking advantage of other individuals.
using them as, you know, your slaves, your servants, the personal army. Oh, I don't like this person. Let me get all these people. I'll tell them this so they can go and ruin this guy's life. Yeah, you know, it's disgusting. It disgusts me when people do this. They take advantage. You know what's worse than that, though, of course, right? Say, I want to see pictures of you. It's filth. It's absolute filth that does that. They contribute absolutely nothing to humanity. And, you know, you sometimes wonder, you, you think, well, the world's probably better off without these people. But that's for another day. It's just the problem is people who take advantage of these other people who, you know, and get in, they do dirty things, right? It's the folks who take advantage of parasocial relationships. They are really, really evil people. But I think you know what I'm trying to say. It's okay to be a fan of something, just, you know, within reason. There's things that are healthy, things that aren't, and it's not right to take advantage of people who may be fans. It's not the right thing to do. Your second question reads as follows. Secondly, how do you feel about enjoying life with all the complicated things going on nowadays? Media in general has flooded our culture with idealized versions of life that do not prepare us for what our futures actually hold. I'm still in high school, by the way. And I'm starting to see the harsh effects of this deceit in my own life dealing with despair and other various issues that stem from my lack of preparedness and distrust and sadness with myself and my own life. I feel like the thing that makes you unique is your introspective and open attitude, as well as your habit of wearing three-piece suits, which I myself do enjoy, are things of a simpler and bygone era that I wish would return. Things in this world are more prosperous, and people are more open to opportunity, but for those who don't necessarily want success or money or fame, what place is there for us in society? I could only see our place as beneath those who dreamt bigger dreams, like becoming famous on social media or becoming someone with a successful job. Unfortunately, I don't see a place for philosophers and thinkers in our modern society, do you have any advice about how to try and seek and enjoy a simpler life without having to go through all the hardships caused by the progress of society? Uh, finally, I really appreciate everything you do. You may not have the most YouTube views, and this podcast may not be widely as listened to as some others, but for those of us who listen to you every week, at least for me, your broadcasts are a light in my life. So thank you for your kind words and email. Well, this is a tough question, because I don't know if there is an answer. You know, the honest-to-God truth in my situation is that I got lucky. And that's what there is to it. Although even in 2016, you know, when I was... My channel didn't even have 100,000 subscribers. I was doing my best to try to earn a living through that and other things. And my goal was not to get big. It, it was just the same exact goal that I have today. Keep your head above water. One thing that has existed, 
I think in all of humanity, and it just changes sometimes in its marketing scheme, I, I think it it breeds off of, you know, the, the avarice that exists in so many people, be that the desire for money, for attention, for whatever it is. You know, nowadays, of course, with the increase, I think, in narcissism, it gets even easier uh, for the powers that be, anyway. But a lot of people have this idea, you know, they want to be rich. They want to be famous. Nowadays, you know, they want to be famous on social media or whatever it is. And they want to be number one. They want to be on top. And... You know the way it goes. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more I think that this is all... Maybe it was never constructed by, but it's being taken advantage of by a lot of the folks in charge of, you know, you name it, major corporations, governments, I think it's all the same, where... where they understand these traits and they pretty much take advantage of it and they look at people and they say, well, you got to play the game to win the prize, so what's it going to be? And, you know, you got people using all these sites and inadvertently marketing and promotion of this and that, you know, commercially and ideologically, etc. People are used. They don't realize they're being used. <laughs> but... You know, that's for another day. It's just, again, the people in charge know this and they take advantage of it. And pretty much everyone is in some way or another. I mean, I know I am, but I go for it willingly. I do these reviews. I mean, you know, you know the way it is. Honestly, it's tough. It's tough. But my best advice for you is do what you can to keep your head above water. I think some folks, they try to convince you that you need to be up in the clouds all the time. You know, you need to be number one, you need to be the best, you need to be the richest, you need to have millions and millions and millions of dollars, and if you aren't, you're a worthless failure, failure etc., etc. But my attitude has always been the same, and this is all that I could say for me. Keeping your head above water is the most important thing. Doing what you can to try to ensure that at the very least you have food, water, and shelter. Right? The essentials. Anything beyond that, while they may be creature comforts, are not necessary. You know, you don't really need the newest phone. You don't need the newest this, the newest that, etc. in terms of monetarily. Yet people are very judgmental. But if you blow that off and you say, well, forget it. You know, forget them. It gets a little easier. But that's tough. That's easier said than done, believe me. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you don't necessarily need to be living this extravagant existence to at least enjoy certain things in life. This is a difficult world, and one thing that, and this is my editorialization, so people will disagree, and that's fine. This is just my take, since you are asking me. 
one thing that you're already seeing now and one thing that is only going to become more apparent is how much of this world is built purely from lies. You know, it's... Believe me, you're... I would wager the deceit that you're seeing right now is... It's only scratching the surface. And one thing to realize is, unfortunately, this is just the way that it is, and there's nothing that can be done about it. You know, one thing that was the toughest for me was not necessarily in terms of society, but in terms of humanity and how I view human nature and most of the people that, you know, I see day to day, you know, in public and online, you name it, it's you realize how many awful people there are in this world. You want to change it. You want to do something about it. You wish it weren't so. But there's nothing that can be done. There's nothing that anyone can do. And even if you could, I am more and more convinced that this is just how some people are born, so it's just a never-ending problem with, you know, the cruel people in this world. I think that's the hardest one of all, when you see how people are. In the end, keep your head up, be the best person that you can be, live your life with dignity, and I sincerely wish you the very best. Thank you for writing in. Next email comes in from Ian, said... I'm currently living in the state of California, in downtown Los Angeles, and I'm originally from Georgia. I've been listening... I'm sorry, I've been living, there we go, in LA for a couple months now, and find myself to be relatively lonely. It's hard to find the genuine people out here, and all the negative comments and jokes about people from LA are true. Living in LA can make your perspective of people very distorted, I'm actually studying fashion out in LA, and I'm currently loving the school, but again struggling with finding friends. I love the fact that you wear suits and are willing to stick to a more traditional fashion sense. I think everyone can create their own unique style. I love the suits, and hope you keep wearing them, although on another note, if you're interested, I would recommend adding some brighter colors to the wardrobe. Maybe some royal blues in terms of suits or forest greens. Uh, it would fit your skin tone well, while also adding a pop of color uh, for those fun occasions. I also wanted to let you know that your podcast is honestly fantastic. You are a genuine and kind-hearted person who just wants to make videos on the internet. I love that about you. I'm a recent listener of the podcast, but long-time viewer on the YouTube channel. Love the food reviews, and hope you keep doing them till you're sitting in your rocking chair 50 years from now. I know it's hard to be your own individual person, as I try to be myself, and I really appreciate that about you. I can tell you're a kind-hearted and honest person, and that just makes me enjoy your content so much more. Thanks for being you. Keep up the great work. From Ian, note I am very dyslexic. So if my grammar or spelling is off, I apologize. Uh, to interject, well, number one, thank you, Ian, for your kind words, and I wish you the very best in your pursuits. 
and uh, honestly, it's your, your spelling and all of that is pretty much fine. There were there's like one or two things, but it's so easy. I know what you're saying, and it didn't even impact my reading of it one bit. So no, not, no worries, not not to worry. You're totally fine. Uh, first and foremost, on to your suggestion about the uh, the color combinations. I appreciate your suggestion, and certainly something I'll put in the back of my mind. When it comes down to the suits that I wear and just how I dress, I always prefer uh, either the darker or muted uh, colors. But I mean, honestly, if you look at the suits that I wear pretty much, right, like what is it all? It's uh, usually black, black suits, gray suits, uh, dark blue suits, with a brown suit thrown in here and there. And that's really the extent of it. You know, you're not really seeing any red suits or any bright blue suits or any of that. Uh, all I ever really wear are dark colors. And even all of the ties that I wear, you notice that not many of them are overly bright. You know, most of the ties that I wear, again, you can see are kind of black or gray with a little bit of red in them. But again, they're not overly... They're not really popping. I mean, the brightest tie I think I've ever worn was the uh, the famous Little Caesars tie, at least in recent times. Um, but I just like the darker colors and all of that. I don't know, I just think it's more... That's just more me, you know? That's just what I find myself wearing. And, uh, yeah, I just... That's how I like it. I just like all the dark colors and the grays and blacks and all of that. So that's just what I like to wear. Um, but again, I certainly appreciate your uh, suggestion in terms of metaphorically spicing it up a little bit. Now, you did mention, as uh, a little bit of a postscript, uh, why do you think you don't conform to society? And to add to that, do you think not conforming made your life a little harder in school or in social situations? Uh, so again, thank you, Ian, and also I thank you for your kind words, and... Uh, I know sometimes, especially as of late, I kind of can be a little, a little pessimistic or, you know, jaded about the world and society and humanity, and that's just because I, you know, I try not to surround myself in all of the overwhelmingly negative uh, stimuli, so to speak, but I just kind of see what's around me and what's going on and you know I don't necessarily like it I don't I think what kind of leads to almost a sense of despondency is you don't like what you see you wish it weren't so but you know there's nothing you can do about it and it wears on you it really it really wears on you but you know I just gotta keep my head up and live essentially the best life I can and know that not everyone in this world is this way, you know, you can't, you can't go too far now and just look at everyone and say that they are this, they are that, you know, when you don't know that for sure yet, you got to give people a chance. And that's what I try to do to the best of my abilities. Sometimes it gets difficult, admittedly, but I still try to the, as best I can to give everyone a blank slate. It doesn't matter who you are or any of that. This has always been my approach, and I still try to do this. You know, we try not to judge, I just give you a blank slate, 
everyone is the same to me. Let your actions dictate who you are. Judgment should be reserved until then. Everyone is everyone is on that same level otherwise, you know? That's just how I've always always been. Most of the time if someone is a horrible person, they will establish themselves as one. It'll always slip through one way or another. I guess it's just the sheer amount that are. It's uh, disheartening. But nonetheless, well, why, why am I the way that I am, I guess? Why don't I conform to society? Well, it's twofold. Uh, number one, I've just always had odd interests, and I've always been strange, you know, the way that I dress, and my interest in radio, and, you know, introversion, etc. But I realized that these are things that made me very, very happy in life, and yes, while it is at the consequence of isolating myself from society, well, this is my life in the end, and I do want to do what makes me happy. I really assessed that. I knew that it would separate me from others, but I was willing to take that leap. And to me, even if that separates me from society, it's worth it. So these are things that made me happy. I wasn't willing to give up on them and abandon them for the sake of conformity. So I made that choice, but it was a difficult choice. It's not an easy one, and it's not necessarily an overnight choice either. So that's the first reason. And that's really why I originally did, and that's still a main driving force to this day. The second reason, which is kind of building on what I was saying earlier, uh, which has been becoming more and more pronounced, especially with pretty much every passing day, uh, like I was saying about humanity and how people are, etc., Another reason, now that I am in many ways, let's say, separated from society, well, I see what I see, and me personally, and I'm only speaking for myself here, a lot of what I see, you know, I don't necessarily like and don't want to be a part in, so then it's like, well, if I'm already not there, do I really want to be? <laughs> the obvious answer is absolutely not. Well, then I'm not going to necessarily conform to society, in that case, and if I still have the option of not joining in, well, my goodness, I'm not going to then, because I, I don't like it, I don't like what I see, and I don't... If I can have that choice, I'm not going to be there. So that just reinforces, you know, my views, and again, remember what I was saying about keeping your head above water. If, going forward, whatever the situation is, if I can keep my head above water even just barely, I'll take it. That's what I'll do. I'll take it. Even if you could, you know, rejoin the race and do better, I'll just take it and do things the way I do, I suppose. Now, you also mention uh, your last thing. Do you think not conforming made your life a little harder in school or in social situations? Oh, yeah. Of course. Um... Social situations I can't really talk about as much because I am so, you know, I'm just extremely introverted, you name it. So I don't find myself in many of those situations. 
Um, but of course, it's it's strange. Now nowadays, again, it makes it a little easier because someone might recognize and say, "Oh yeah, here." the report of the week, so that kind of justifies all of this to them. But in other cases, yeah, it's <laughs> a little difficult. And in school, I most definitely could say yes. Early on was the worst, and eventually people kind of just accepted, you know, that I was this way. Although, again, I'm sure people said things behind my back, but I just didn't care. I still don't. Um... But yeah, early on in school, people did give me a hard time. Wasn't horrible bullying, but of course people, you know, because you, you make yourself a target. You're separating yourself from uh, everyone else. It makes it easy, putting a bullseye on yourself. So yeah, that did make it tough. But again, these were all things that I had carefully considered. And that was the decision that I made. I just want to be this way, even if it... Uh, causes people to give me a hard time and makes me an easy target for their mockery. So that's where that comes uh, comes in. Yeah, it was tough, but it was a choice that I made. So I wish you the best of your luck in your pursuit of friends. I know LA and you know California in general. Uh, it's one of those states that people, I think, states and areas that people they either love it or they hate it all i could say not to not to trash such a state but there's some areas that you could say you know this is where i want to live this is where i can imagine myself this is where i want to be and there's other areas where it's like no i don't want to live here this i i don't want to be here and uh california it's just one of those states that i don't think I'll ever find myself living in. Of course, you can't rule out everything, but it's just, I don't see myself living there in the future. It's just, it's just not for me. Now, I'll certainly be happy to visit, you know, tour the state, but I just don't think it's a place that I ever intend on living in. Uh, honestly, I would say that I have made myself comfortable as a Florida man, and uh, this is where I intend to remain, here in Florida. So thank you again for your email. All right, next email comes in from Thomas in Alberta, Canada. Uh, this listener, I don't know if anyone remembers, but he had mentioned maybe a month or two ago that he was trying to get into med school and had the interview coming up. So he says, I'm happy to update that I will be attending med school this year. My interview seemed to go off without a hitch, and I'm thrilled to begin studying medicine. Looking back, it seems like a lot changed from even a year ago. What was the biggest change you have found in yourself from the past year? Thanks so much for continuing to provide excellent commentary and content. All the best, Thomas in Alberta, Canada. So thank you, Thomas. Uh, and congratulations. Congratulations. You know, I had a feeling, I don't know, it's just a good feeling that I'm, I thought the interview, it's going to go, it's going to go good. I it's going to go smoothly. I don't know, I just had that feeling. So congratulations, and I wish you the very best of luck in your studies. Uh, well, change. What's one change that I have found in myself from the past year? I guess this is kind of answering the question, you know, I don't know how much... I guess it is a change by definition. It's something that I've 
at least realized from experience, and it's something that I've already known, but I've putting I've been putting greater emphasis on it, and something I'm trying to employ more in day-to-day life. And that is, and again, this is something I've always known, but I'm just trying to do it more, having the understanding that situations can be fluid, that the situation can change, it can develop, one's understanding of the situation can change along with that. And that's okay. That things can develop, things can change, views can change as more information comes out or as things develop. That you don't necessarily need to be forced to take one view, one stance, one approach, whatever it might be, and stick with that indefinitely. That it's okay to change your mind and re-examine things as more information comes in. You know, look at things retrospectively, etc. And again, that's something that I've always known and had tried to put into practice, but it's something that I just... I've been trying to do more over the last year. I don't know how successful it is, but I certainly try. Because one thing that you see now, a lot of things are in, like, absolute terms. You're either this or you're that, right? And if you have this view, then you always have to have it. It could never change because you're on this team. You're one of this or that. or You know, things just get divided into these categories, and I feel like some people either are or they feel like they have to have this same view forever. But it's okay to change your mind. Situations are fluid. A lot of them are, anyway. And uh, it's understandable. This is just the way the world works. So that's one change that I've been trying to make. And a lot of that, you know, it also comes from asking questions, even just to yourself. Uh, so that's just my, my view of at least one change, but something that I think is a very important one. So thank you, Thomas, again, for your email. Uh, Alex is writing in. Hi, Review Bra. On the podcast, you mentioned that you play Minesweeper occasionally. Have you ever beaten it on expert mode? Only done it once, but it was so satisfying. All the best from Alex. So thank you, Alex. Well, let me open up Minesweeper. I'm pretty sure I have. Now, I kind of play the old-school Minesweeper, so I'm not sure what... Um, modes there are in mine. I play the Windows Minesweeper from... I think this was originally the one that was used maybe from Windows Vista. I was just double-checking. The Windows games that I use are the ones that were originally released with Windows Vista and then also used with Windows 7, I think it was. I don't, I don't use either of those um, operating systems, but I was able to kind of get those games. I, I downloaded them and was able to get them on my computer. Um, so that's the Minesweeper that I use. Uh, in my case, there are the three modes. You have Beginner, which is 10 mines in a 9x9 nine nine grid, then Intermediate uh, with 40 mines in a 16 
by 16 grid, and then advanced, which is 99 mines in a 16 by 30 grid. I have played advanced, but it is tough. It is tough, and it requires a lot of patience. Uh, most of the time what I do, I've beaten a couple games in advanced, but that's about it. Uh, what I play most of the time is, because you can make, at least in this one, custom. So I do the 16 by 30 grid, and instead of putting 99 mines, you know, I put around 85 mines. So, you know, it's like, I feel like it's a nice midpoint between intermediate and advanced, because there are enough mines that it always provides a challenge, and you always find yourself in some circumstance where you really got to think it through. But there aren't so many that the game becomes unwinnable, as you could certainly win a healthy share of games, but there's always a bit of challenge behind each one. So to me, that was the perfect, um, the perfect spot. And that's what I usually do in terms of Minesweeper. That's my go-to. Yeah, height is 16, width is 30, and there are 85 mines in the grid. So that's what I do, but it always presents a nice challenge, and uh, that's, that's my go-to Minesweeper setup. So this next email... Well, I hope anyway the person who sent it understands where I'm coming from here. Uh, this is a misconception, a blatant misconception. Not that the points raised are invalid, but the entire argument, uh, at least here, is based on a misconception. So, I think sometimes someone will hear what I, what I say, whatever I spew out of my mouth, and sometimes I know it's on me that I will just forget. Because, I mean, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not superhuman. I, I forget things. I don't clarify every little thing. And in other cases, you know, some folks, just confusion ensues for one reason or another. And they think that because I call this out, then obviously I feel this way or feel that way. That's not always true. Uh, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, you know, and this is one of those cases where it isn't. That's not to say that I don't feel the way that I do, but it's a two-part thing, and this individual is excluding the second part. And again, that might be at fault of my own. A email coming in from... Jamie. <laughs> I remember your emails. Uh, you write, You have stated that you appreciate critical thinking and challenging beliefs, and I intend that right now. To you. You have often called out fast food employees for their poor work ethic and identify it as the root cause of the downfall of a beloved chain. As a former retail manager, I do not disagree that poor service can ruin a business, but I believe the current climate uh, it may that I believe in the current climate it may be a bit more nuanced and perhaps there's a healthy amount of blame to be shifted to the corporations that have failed to understand the true value and necessity of their staff. Now you continue, but what I'm going to say, it just makes the whole, everything that you've wrote here completely null 
and void in terms of trying to, you know, challenge critical thought, uh, because, like you have even said in your own words, poor service can ruin a business. Absolutely, you get a bad crew of workers, they will drive it into the ground, and that's been proven time and time again, but the entire system is to blame. And I'm not going to sit there and BS you and tell you that it's not. You think, do you honestly think for one second that I would sit there, and I take it you're discussing Steak and Shake here, and bemoan the loss of Steak and Shake, and dimwittedly assume that somehow this entire chain collapsed because the workers there just happened to be lazy and do a bad job, yet the other establishments right down the street are serving a good product with a good attitude as well. The problem always starts at the top. One way or another, it does. And it works its way down. And I even addressed that. It starts at the top. It starts with the management. There's one thing that always does trickle down. It all falls. So with all due respect, you're mistaken. I criticize human behavior. And I will call it like I see it. I have my grievances, and it's not just with the little guy. It just so happens that the other channel that I do is a food review channel, so of course many of the questions are going to revolve around the food industry and are especially from the consumer viewpoint. You know, it's not even focused on the corporate side of things, but I think it's utterly ridiculous to think that I'll sit there and criticize, you know, the minimum wage workers and have this attitude that, oh, if you make uh, hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars, you obviously get a pass. If that's not sufficient, I, I don't know what else I could say. But you write, let's revisit the very recent past, the days of the restrictive lockdowns and the essential worker. The definition of essential varied by local, but where I live, it included restaurant workers in a drive through setting, and they worked through it. There was a massive push to recognize the low-wage workers in grocery stores, gas stations, pharmacies, and food service as essential, and for a short period of time even, there was a movement to call these essential workers heroes for risking their lives to serve us all talk about gaslighting. The public and the employers quickly forgot this whole narrative as soon as they felt safe to return to normal life and treated and resumed treating these workers as low value and expendable. My point being, if we enjoy our experience frequenting fast food establishments and acknowledging that the employees can make or break this experience, We have to support decent working conditions for them. To put it simply, the gross side of human nature you talk about at times is really on naked display towards service workers. So much smug superiority and nastiness from all directions can break people's spirits, all while they can barely make ends meet. 
Right, and then to add on to your email, number one, I kind of laughed at the essential worker thing because you see it, I'm sure. That's That was a lie. I mean, it always has been. And like I already clarified, my criticisms are of humanity. And while I most certainly agree that individuals deserve fair compensation for the effort that they put in, I don't agree with making excuses to try to justify certain things. And I say that not in reference, not even in the least, to just minimum wage workers and the fast food industry, but in my opinion, the degradation of the world around us. In some ways, technologically speaking, things may be the best that they've ever been. In other ways, it seems as though it's the worst it's ever been. Now, I would wager that you disagree with that. That's fine. You have every right to. But this all leads down a very slippery slope. And while it's easy to make certain justifications, where do you draw the line? Or will there ever even be a line that's drawn? Yeah, getting things taken care of. I mean, I really don't think there was much of a disagreement at all with that last email, but I'm sure that there, you know, obviously you can't see eye to eye with everyone, but yeah, look, I just see things the way that I do. Other folks see differently, and that's just how humanity is. And honestly, that should be, in my opinion, a healthy, the sign of a healthy society. Uh, you know, as long as people aren't killing each other in the streets over that, it's all right to have disagreements. And I think that that can lead to, you know, the productive transference of ideas. And that's something that should, that should certainly be allowed and advocated. But the email was thoughtfully composed, and that's the way that it should be, you know. Someone maybe has a disagreement, they, they go about it in a civilized and logical manner. What you see so much now, and I think this is maybe, maybe this is how people always were, I don't know. I haven't been around for all eternity, so what, what can I compare it to, you know, firsthand? But a lot of folks are just so quick to admonish one another if there's a little bit of an impasse no one really asks the questions well why do you you know why do you feel this way so hopefully it could lead to understanding and then civil discussion but you know oh f you oh f you you're this you're that oh this should have I, I hope you die you know and then the death threats you see that so often nowadays people sling that nonsense around so much goes both ways. I'm not saying it's one group that does it more than the other. It's just, it's a universal trait. And the thing that I wish people considered is what does all this accomplish? You know, what, what, what does it accomplish? Does this really change any minds? I bet some people think it does, but does it really? Does it? I don't think so. I think it causes people on both sides to dig their heels in reaffirm that they are the ones that are right, and then return to, you know, their communities or information sources, whatever it might be, where those views are then bolstered. And this combative attitude, again, I'm sure it feels good, and the people who are perpetrating it, they feel like 
yeah, I'm putting them in their place, but I don't really think, you know, minds are being changed and hearts are being won over through that necessarily. I don't know. What I'm fearful of is one day, what is it going to lead to, you know? Sometimes I think that a civil war will never really happen, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm kind of divided in terms of thinking that people are just going to allow this to permanently escalate and are still in this state of dopamine-fueled instant gratification. And, you know, with all of the avenues on the internet and social media, etc., to express things, it'll just stay confined to there. But then, you know, you always wonder, well, I mean, theoretically, there has to be a tipping point somewhere. I mean, there has to. And certain civil wars and, you know, even worse, genocide, where it's just not really combatants, but they just determine that every living being who is part of this or that, whatever group it might wind up being, uh, just deserves death. And history would dictate that some of those horrors and atrocities, uh, they can come up quicker than you'd think. It just takes something to spark it, and people will, will take the incentive, sadly. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, it's, do I see that happening? No, no, I don't. But when you leave the mind to wander, it's certainly, certainly something I've thought of before and uh, something I've been dwelling on a little bit lately, you know? Like, what would it take for the state of things in this country to get to that? I mean, how far does it have to go? I don't know. Like, that's, a, that's I don't know. I don't know. Guess we're not there yet, though, so that's a good thing. Anyway, let's get a sip of water in and uh, maybe take a break for five, ten seconds to allow for a little bit of a transference from obviously some very, very, you know, negative discussion uh, into something hopefully a little lighter. So let's take a water break here and allow it to kind of fizzle out. All right. I know some people don't like it, but I'm not going to sit here and, you know, be some sort of robot that it's only going to be, you know, smiles and positivity 100% of the time. This is my show, and if I intend to explore some of the darker recesses of humanity, uh, by darn it, I will. And it's your choice to listen or not. You know, no one's forcing you, mind you, at gunpoint that you have to listen to the whole show, and you know, it's so, yeah, don't listen, that's fine by me. I, like I said, I don't do these for a mass audience. I just do the show to do it, and uh, whatever comes of it after that is, uh, well, it is what it is, right? So let's get into some shorter questions right now. Kind of funny, God. What a topic change. Oh, well, you got to change it somehow, so let's just... <laughs> let us be unabashed about it and dive in headfirst. Uh, this next question is actually a review request. Comes in from Jeffrey, who says, Hope you're well. Uh, I've seen today at Publix that they are selling Pepsi Blue. Pepsi Blue was an item that came out, I believe, when I was in middle school, something like 20 years ago. 
I felt like this would be a great item for a food review. Thanks. All right, thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, Pepsi Blue 2021. It says the berry flavored soda is coming back in May for the first time since 2004. It was first released in 2002. Said it'll be sold everywhere while supplies last. And uh, Pepsi Blue, uh, let's see, they said, passionate Pepsi Blue fans have been clamoring for the return of their beloved Berry Cola. Said it's a throwback for the ages. The early 2000s cult classic that'll turn your tongue blue is finally coming back with the decades-old hit song Blue Da Badi. Yeah, berry flavor. Might be something I'll give a try. That might be a uh, fun review to do for the nostalgia factor, although granted, we are at the end of May already, and it might be might be over at this point. There was a drink that I wanted to review. It's, it's just kind of funny how this works, right? There was, um... Oh, God, a couple months ago it was. Coca-Cola released... <laughs> This, um, uh, what was it? One of those energy drinks, and it was coffee-flavored. And for a while, for a couple weeks, I was inundated with requests. I was getting, like, one or two emails a day, every day, uh, from people who wanted me to do a drink review of it, which that does show that there's a degree of demand. And then they found themselves, the company, they found themselves in some political controversy... And then the requests for it dropped off like a... They dropped off a cliff edge. And, uh... I thought, eh, it would be... Uh, I think it would be a bad idea right now to, uh, review it. You know, it's just... <laughs> I just don't think people would interpret a review of that all that well right now. So I shelved that. And at this point, that drink is old news, so I'm never going to try it out. But it's just funny how it is. So thank you for, um, for the suggestion. Uh, Ted is checking in, says, hello, hope all is well. I had an idea. Uh, it would be great if you could publish a calendar feed to which we could subscribe, whether it's Gmail or iCloud or what have you. It'd be a really convenient way to keep up to date with the latest broadcast schedules, frequencies, and locations. That's an interesting suggestion. So thank you for it. It's certainly something off to consider going forward. Fabrizio is checking in, listens to the last podcast while doing some gardening and replacing one of the glass panels of my bedroom's window. Said thanks for keeping me company. Quick question. If McDonald's approached you to create a review bra meal, would you accept it? All the best from Fabrizio. Uh, well, it would certainly de uh, depend on the circumstances. I will give an honest answer, and maybe it's more honest than it should be. But quite frankly, since what I do is my bread and butter, uh, it really would have to depend on how much the compensation would be. And assuming that a major brand deal, that would obviously net the company possibly billions of dollars. 
you would just have to make sure that you're not just getting the free publicity and nothing more. That's all that I can that's all that I can say. That's just the honest truth. And it would depend. Uh, some companies, and I'm not naming names here, but very big companies, despite their massive, massive profitability, they are cheap and they are chintzy. And people who don't have the first-hand experience will say, no way, I don't think, you know, insert company name, because again, I'm not going to get myself in legal trouble if I say this, and I very well may if I name names. But people would say, oh, they wouldn't do that. Look at how, look at how much they made in the last year. Yeah, I just have my experience. That's all I can say. So you just have to make sure that it's, number one, that the compensation is fair. Number two, uh, of course... I would like to have the creative control over what the review bra meal would be. Uh, so for instance, if they say, okay, um, we've made the review bra meal and here's what it's going to be. You know, it's going to be a double cheeseburger with 10 slices of American cheese on it. And that would be on top of the patties. And then we're going to soak the entire sandwich in 10 ounces of mayonnaise and 10, you know, because there's 10 letters in review, brah. We're going to soak it in 10 ounces of mayonnaise because that's your favorite condiment. And then as a side, you're going to have a small fries with no salt and burnt just the way you like it. And make sure you tell them review bra sent you. I'm going to say absolutely not. There's not a chance. If they're going to choose what the review bra meal is, I, I don't want a part of it. I want to be able to choose. If they're going to name the meal after me, then I want it to be my meal. And I'm going to pick something good. Now, part of me was thinking if I were ever... And mind you, this is never going to happen. They're looking for A-list celebrities... BTS, you know, J Balvin, who many people in the U.S. have no clue who the guy is, but he's very, very popular in uh, Central South America. And then Travis Scott, of course, right? All of these are musical superstars. So this is just for fun. This is just fun, uh, hypothetical discussion. But part of me was saying, you know, as a joke, I would like to go along with the the notion of running on empty, you know, and I would like it to be an empty box, an empty Big Mac box, an empty carton for the fries, and an empty soft drink cup, so you're running on empty. <laughs> uh, that would be very wasteful, though, but that would be funny. Um, I mean, honestly... I guess the true definition of, like, a, a review bra meal it would be, well, what do I usually get from McDonald's? And, th and then it would be a really underwhelming meal. You know, because I don't eat much food. You have to understand that. So it wouldn't be... It would be very bland, and it wouldn't be very exciting either. What, it would, at, at this point, what do I get? It would be a double hamburger with ketchup, no onion... Pickles, yes, I'll get the pickles on it. Probably a small fries. And most of the time, that would be it. Sometimes if I am feeling 
rather ravenous, I'll get a, a medium vanilla shake. And that's it. And what's the appeal in that? It's just a, a meager little meal that I don't think would satiate the appetites of the average fast food consumer. But that's the best that I can do. I mean, if I am feeling, I guess, a bit more hungry, maybe substitute it for a quarter pounder, but with the same things. Maybe tack on a chicken nugget with uh, some barbecue sauce. That might be a little better, but that's not really what I get from there. So thank you for the question. Next email comes in from Mike. This is a million dollar idea. Hi, John. I was browsing through your store page, I guess on the Teespring, and I had an idea that could launch your merch into the mainstream. You should sell a line now. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I say that. Not a chance. Not a chance this is going to happen. You should sell a line of women's underwear called Review Bras, and it would be a homage to 80s business wear, sporting wide lapels and baggy, loose-fitting straps. It would be a stark contrast to the modern, slim-fitting style that has become more popular in recent years. You could sell them in solid colors, or for a small upcharge, with various graphics of iconic review bra bra moments. I think these would sell faster than Wendy's spicy chicken nuggets, and they could really elevate your business. Please take this into consideration. I'm sorry, Mike, but I'm... I'm going to crush your hopes and dreams right now. I I don't care if it's a million-dollar idea. That's not something that I'm comfortable doing, and um, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. It's it's not me. I don't want to... I just don't want to be a purveyor of undergarments, men's or women's, or anyone's. I don't care who it's going to. Uh, I just don't want... This is not something I want to be associated with, you know? At other companies branch out into that. I don't want any part of it, you know? I don't want my face on someone's underwear. Like I said, I don't care whose it is. I don't want my face on someone's underwear. I don't want my name on someone's underwear. I don't want it. So, I I, I completely reject your idea. I gotta give you credit. I mean, I think that's the first time anyone has ever pitched something like that to me. Um, but... <laughs> It's just not for me. That's all that I could say, but thank you for suggesting it. <laughs> oh, what, a, what, a, what a suggestion, I have to say, though. All right, next email comes in from Alex. I write this email as I listen to the podcast and a stray musing occurs to me. Do you take any measures to preserve your vocal cords and speaking ability? It occurred to me that your show and your entire well-being depends on your ability to speak. Your four-plus-hour podcasts, radio shows, and main channel involves a lot of speaking. Granted, I know your podcast isn't done in one session. Forgive me for inquiring on such a scary prospect, but I was curious if you ever contemplated how easily it could fall apart if you couldn't speak anymore. That's an interesting question. Uh, Certainly, it's not something that I think about very often, Um, But I just don't overdo it, you know, I don't yell, I don't scream, I really don't belt things out, I'm a rather quiet person, you know, I drink plenty of water, I try not to let it get too hoarse, and, uh, you know, just things like that. 
But it's just one of those things, and this is one of those what-ifs that I think largely we don't have much control over. It's like saying, you know, to the star athlete, you know, let's say the professional marathon runner, do you ever, you know, what do you do to make sure that you don't get into a car accident and break your legs or, or you know, get into a, some sort of injury where you are now impaired from the waist down? Obviously, that would decimate your career, and you can't really do that anymore now that you don't have legs to run. And uh, it's like, well, you know, I try to take care of them. I, uh, whatever, I have my trainers. I try to be careful, you know. I, if there's any issues, I go to a sports medicine specialist, etc., physical therapists. I mean, I've got this routine. I take care. But you could do everything right, and one day as he's crossing the street... You know, there's someone who's distracted driving and comes out of nowhere and smashes into him, and he did everything right. So there's only so much you can do, and then events happen that it's just you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. You hear these stories every now and then, you know, someone, they do everything right, and they try to be very cautious, and it's, I think, a question like that. You know, you could also say, well, what about, and I'm just using this example because I was just thinking about it in terms of my dental stuff. You know, endodontists who do the root canals, uh, they are incredibly precise. At least the guy who, who did the root canals for me, that guy is an expert, let me tell you. Even some of the other uh, dentists and doctors, they complimented him. They were saying, wow, that guy really does a good root canal. <laughs> I mean, this guy is, is so precise. And when I go for the root canals, you know, he's standing over me with this microscope looking down. And he's doing everything through the microscope, you know. It's so precise. And the technology isn't reliably there, at least here in the U.S., that it could just all be done automatically without a person. So what would happen if the guy's vision went away and he can't see anymore? Obviously, he's not going to be able to do these delicate endodontic procedures anymore. So it's just like a question, you could ask this to a lot of folks, and you could do your best, but sometimes events happen that you just can't, you can't account for. So, uh, thank you. Interesting question. Mark is checking in, says, I love the show, and uh, saw the episode on Bigfoot. I highly recommend Max Brooks's book, Devolution, it is fiction, but a great book on Bigfoot. He's also the author of World War Z and uh, the son of legendary comedian Mel Brooks. Thank you from Mark. Well, Mark, a good suggestion, and I, I have to tell you, I am one step ahead of you. I own the book. And uh, right after it came out, because I own World War Z, too, and uh, <laughs> heck, I even own the uh, Zombie Survival Guide. So, I mean, I like Max Brooks. And when I saw he was releasing a book about Bigfoot, oh, I, I snatched that thing up so quick. I even talked about it on a broadcast a couple months ago. And uh, I really liked it. I really liked the book. I will once again recommend it to anyone interested. Um, I just thought it was a good read. You know, there are parts that are spooky. There are parts that will keep you, you know, it's a page turner. There are parts that will make you want to rip your hair out and say, you idiots, you know, you you people are hopeless, you're a lost cause. 
and everything in between, but well, it's a good book. It's a good book, and it shares some of my, you know, sentiments about a lot of things. It's, it's like, not only does it talk about Bigfoot and the cryptids and all of that, but simultaneously, in certain ways, it's calling out humanity's reliance to technology, especially this internet-connected world and all of the smart devices, and it it just essentially is saying, because I'll just, uh, here's what I'll say without giving it much away, it's in the near future, maybe within the next couple years, and you have these... I don't know if all of them are like this, but, you know, I kind of think of them as Silicon Valley uh, elitist types. Obviously, very, they're well off financially and very technologically, you know, connected. And I think as you see a lot with Silicon Valley, you have these ideas that with the internet, you could really do anything, and there's no way that it could possibly fail. And then you become overly reliant on it, right? But they, they decide, well, we could essentially build a community of smart houses deep in the wilderness. These houses are completely self-sustaining because it's all controlled through through my phone, and I could just press buttons and it could do anything I want it to, pretty much. So everything is connected. We've got fiber optic cables that will get us the highest speed internet, so it's like we're still in downtown, you know, whatever city it might be. We get all of our supplies flown in through, uh, you know, drones. So it's like we could have this extremely remote experience while still having this level of connectivity that you would get in a downtown metropolitan area. And that might sound like a cool idea, but what it explores is you have to realize where you are and what environment you're in, and what if something goes wrong? Are these individuals equipped for that? Are they prepared? Would they actually be able to sustain themselves if they wound up off the grid? What would happen? And in this story, well, let's just say that this community in question, it's not a very large community, and it's located kind of near Mount Rainier in Washington State. And let's just say that Mount Rainier has some <laughs> volcanic activity that may or may not cut them off and then bring Bigfoots into the mix and you have yourself a very interesting story but I mean I agree with that notion you know you know what I, I talk about in terms of preparedness and all of that stuff I don't think there's anything wrong with that I think it's a healthy thing to be ready in certain cases if things were to fail because they certainly will now, we have so much reliance on this infrastructure, but you see what even severe weather events can do, uh, let alone the powers of authoritarian governments. And, you know, those things can change rapidly, political situations, etc. 
and just how you know instability can shake a region. So I always think it's good to have a fallback. That's one of the many reasons why I'm such an advocate for radio. Um, but it's not just radio. There's, there's more to it than that. But, you know, even in my case, I mean, I would consider myself more than sufficiently prepared for a severe hurricane impact. Let's say one was to hit Florida. I mean, hurricane season is already beginning. Uh, it's already begun, pretty much. We've had our first named storm, Anna. And you don't know what the hurricane season is going to hold. I, I mean, obviously, there's going to be some major hurricanes this year. Uh, the formal predictions are all assuming that there might be three to five major hurricanes. Some of those might hit the U.S. I might get hit by one. I don't know what the future holds. And I have made the decision, I've made this years ago, and I stand by it, that unless it's something absolutely cataclysmic, because I am not in danger from a storm surge, I'm going to ride out the storm, you know? It could be a Category 4 hurricane or any of that. I'm going to ride it out. I mean, that's what I did with Hurricane Irma, you know? I was, I left the state, and then I came back the day before it hit and uh, rode it out, and I'm ready to do that. But you could even have all of this stuff. It gets to a point where there are situations that, for instance, I was reading once again about solar flares, because there were a couple solar flares, some minor ones, uh, today. And I was thinking about solar flares, uh, you know, solar storms, coronal mass ejections, etc. And, you know, it's unlikely, but the Carrington event happened once already, you know, in this, in this fairly modern age, I mean, during the days of the telegraph, then in 2012, I mean, there was a solar storm there that was considered a Carrington-class event that missed Earth. We got really lucky there. In 2003, there was an extreme solar flare that, again, missed Earth, um, but it was the strongest solar flare at least ever recorded with modern instruments because it hit a uh, satellite. I guess it's the Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite, the GOES, hit one of those and uh, measured it to the strongest ever recorded. If that hit Earth, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be good at all. And then other events, you know, that aren't really corroborated by much, but in terms of the carbon levels, uh, 660 BC, around 774 AD, and. Uh, 994 AD, these events too. I mean, so this stuff happens. Now, is it likely that it will happen? You know, unlikely, but I mean, you can't you know, never say never. But if a strong enough solar flare did hit, it would bring modern society down to its knees. I, yeah, you know, am I prepared for that? No, I'm not. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I don't think I would fare all that well temporarily, but there's things that you can't take into account and uh, just not cut out for it, you know. So if, you know, hey, that's it for me, I guess that's it. Then it was meant to be. But, you know, these are events that you you aren't anticipating. Same thing in terms of, you know, La Palma, which I've addressed before, the, the purported 
mega tsunami that could hit the East Coast or a Yellowstone exploding or any of that. Obviously, those would be dreadful situations, but is you know, if it happens, that's it. So you just take into account what you can and go from there. But like I was saying, uh, that book, it's a good one. I like it and I recommend it. Uh, Devolution, D-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N. Evolution with a D in front of it. It's a good question. La Palma, you know? Something I was thinking about the other day and it infiltrated my dreams. Um, because you have to understand that the, the theory about La Palma, it's a theory, and you have to get that first. I think Yellowstone exploding is more of an inevitability than it is a theory, but La Palma, the uh, purported tsunami risk, is theoretical. All right, now you, you have to understand this about tsunamis, and this is the basic knowledge, of course, Tsunamis can be triggered by multiple things. Now, of course, it's, you know, the most common cause of tsunamis is, you know, through seismic activity. But there is also the possibility that a tsunami could be triggered by a large landslide. You know, it's all about the displacement of water. And in the most basic sense, think of it this way, you know, if you've ever done this or if you've ever uh, at least seen a video of it, and I'm sure we all have, imagine that you have a swimming pool and it's very still, you know, the surface is very, very placid. And all of a sudden, you see a real big guy. Now, it could be anything. Yeah, it could be a more portly individual or it could be someone who's very big in structure, you know, maybe a big bodybuilder or, you know, a big American football player, someone, just someone who is of larger stature and has a lot of, a lot of force and momentum. And they leap into this pool and their impact sends a giant splash. And even after their initial impact, you know that once placid surface is now very disrupted and you have all these little mini waves and it's all sloshing around like crazy. You know, you see that. You've seen the videos of it. Right, now in the grand scheme of things, of course, and obviously it's much more sophisticated than that, but in terms of the ocean, the same thing could theoretically apply if there is a large impact, be that from, you know, from an asteroid or a large landslide. And... This has happened on smaller scales, even in certain, I think, bays in Alaska. You know, there was a mega tsunami up in Alaska in 20, I think it was 2016. And then there was another mega tsunami in the 50s. I'm talking tsunami waves of 1,300 feet high. You might say BS, you know, I was almost going to say the bad word. But you might say no way. Uh, but, you know, read about it. Uh, let's see, here's the one I was thinking of. Latuya Bay, Alaska. Yeah, and this was caused by a landslide. On July 9th, 1958, a giant landslide at the head of Latuya Bay in Alaska genera generated a wave that washed out trees to a maximum altitude of 1706 feet. The wave surged over the headland 
stripping trees and soil down to the bedrock, and surged along the fjord, which forms Latoya Bay, destroying two fishing boats anchored there and killing two people. You imagine how terrifying that must have been to see a nearly 2,000-foot-tall wave coming at you. Whew. There was another uh, mega-tsunami that happened in uh, Icy Bay, Alaska. It's a common theme, I guess, in terms of these happening in Alaska. But again, in 2015, so it's 2015, not 16, side of a mountain collapsed, and same type of thing, you know, the displacement of water. And it generated a uh, mega-tsunami with an initial height of 328 feet. Now, obviously, that's not you know, the intimidating 2,000 feet, but still. I mean, what's the difference if you've got a wave that tall coming at you? It just gets to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. And this happened in an uninhabited area. No one witnessed it, and it wasn't detected for several hours. But the damage was surveyed, and uh, it was determined that that's what did it. So it happened with no one around, no one to see it, but happened nonetheless. So anyway, we know that tsunamis could theoretically happen either via seismic activity, landslides, impacts, etc. Well, one of the theories that kind of gets people thinking is the island of La Palma, which is part of the Canary Islands, which it's an archipelago off of the west coast of Africa. I I think it's controlled by Spain still. And the island of La Palma is at the risk of undergoing a large landslide, which theoretically could cause a tsunami in the Atlantic Ocean. And some research done in the 2000s estimated that if there was this massive sudden landslide that was of large proportions on this island, it could theoretically cause tsunamis across the entire North Atlantic and impact countries as far away as North America. And then there's later research that then debates, well, you know, if there is a tsunami, would it be of substantial height by the time it gets to North America? Would it not? What if the colla- if the collapse is more gradual than it wouldn't if it was a multi-stage event that wouldn't really cause a tsunami, but if it all fell at once and maybe it's just like all this uncertainty and no one really knows. And, you know, there would be various... Now, the good news, mind you, is that there is no <laughs> there is no realistic chance of this happening in our lifetimes anyway. I would say the probability of this, you know, landslide even happening in our lifetimes is, is about equal to, you know, Yellowstone exploding. It might happen at some point, but the chances are that it would happen anytime soon are slim to none. But it's something, it's just a thought experiment, really. And, you know, pondering the what-ifs. But anyway, some of the worst-case models from the 2000s pretty much said... I'll just give the time frame. Within two minutes of the collapse, a 3,000-foot thick dome of water rises above the landslide. Within five minutes, the dome collapses to a height of 1,600 feet as it advances by 50 kilometers, around 31 miles, additionally wave of valleys form. In 10 minutes, the landslide is now over, 
and waves reaching heights of 1,300 to 2,000 feet hit the three western Canary Islands. Within an hour, 160 to 330 foot waves hit Africa. Within three to six hours, uh, the waves hit South America and Newfoundland, reaching heights of 50 to 70 feet and around 33 feet, respectively. Uh, Spain and England are partially protected by La Palma, thus tsunami waves only reach 16 to 23 feet, so not a, you know, an issue, but not huge. And then within about nine hours, the wave would reach the rest of the United States east coast, a wave, a tsunami wave of about 80 feet, uh, hitting the coast of Florida. Now, obviously, this would be the worst-case scenario of a highly improbable event, but then there are further studies that say, well, if this were to happen, you know, and then you get all this conflicting research. Some say, oh, well, actually, it would just be a 10-foot tsunami. Now, it would just be one foot by the time it reaches the Caribbean. Now, we think that this evidence here geologically shows that it would be a mega-tsunami, and, you know, it's just all this conflicting stuff. Guess no one would really know till what happens, and hopefully it never will. Um, you know, but it's just what we would have. Uh, but obviously, if it were that worst-case scenario, it would not paint a pretty picture of uh, the impacts. Because obviously, tsunami waves don't just stop at the coast, they go inland a bit. And uh, it would lead to mass destruction, no doubt about it. So, I was researching that the other day, and... I had a dream about La Palma. It took place, I would say, in the present, um, with a few minor tweaks to how society is, but largely the same, um, so pretty much in the here and now. So in my dream, now, I, you know, you know how it is with dreams, sometimes you find yourself in a setting, a situation, or a circumstance that really you would never find yourself in. It's just not some place that you would really ever be, or it's not something you would see yourself doing. But it's a dream, so why you wind up there, who knows? It's just a dream, and uh, that's all. But for some reason, I was on a cruise ship. You know, there's, this wasn't like a Titanic ocean liner thing, but I'm talking one of the giant, the big honking, massive cruise ships. And, uh, I mean, they are huge vessels, let me tell you. Um, it makes the ocean liners of many decades ago seem tiny in comparison. So these are huge ships. I have no idea what I was doing on this cruise ship, quite frankly. I really don't know what I was doing. I've never had the desire to go on a cruise. I am not a cruise ship type of person. But somehow, for some reason, I was there. I don't know if it was just something I wanted to do. Maybe in the dream world, I had a change of heart. Maybe I was there for some other reason, you know? Maybe there was something that I was reviewing that was on the cruise ship, or there was some event or conference or something I wanted to attend that was on this, or something. I don't know. I was on the cruise ship off of the east coast of Florida, and there's this kind of, I don't know, it's just where it happened to be. I didn't have the best room, honestly. 
Uh, I didn't have one of those, you know, executive suites with all the windows and everything. No, my my room was very basic. Honestly, I don't even <laughs> in the um in my dream it didn't even have a window or a porthole or any of that. It was an interior room. Obviously a couple decks down. But, you know, I guess I was just happy with what I had, you know, had a little a little bed, um, a desk, a TV, and, uh, you know, a place that I could connect my computer to, my laptop, and uh, still make videos, record broadcasts, whatever. I had an internet connection, and I was still hooked up, and obviously I was able to enjoy the amenities of the ship, so I was still okay. Could go to the restaurants, could go up on the deck, you name it, and uh, I guess have a decent time. Well, obviously what happens, right? This landslide, this gigantic landslide happens at La Palma. And immediately there are reports of mass destruction from a mega tsunami at the immediate vicinity, you know, kind of fitting that timeline uh, that the nearby Canary Islands have just been completely obliterated and just pretty much 100% destruction. So this worst case scenario is playing out and here I am in a ship a couple miles off of the coast that probably in a couple hours' time, massive waves are going to impact, and I may very well be living the last hours of my life. What's the general mood in this dream reality in the United States? Are people panicking? You know, what's going on? No. No one is panicking because the experts have a different view of the tsunami than some of the folks who have the understanding of this worst-case scenario. What's happening? You have these scientists and government figureheads who are immediately making statements saying that... They're saying, well, I know initially, you know, there were some old reports that... This could have a, an impact on the United States, but, you know, recent research shows that uh, there is going to be no impact, that waves might only be a foot higher by the time that it gets here. So please don't panic. There's no need to evacuate. Uh, there's no need to worry. Instead, please focus your efforts on the Canary Islands, which have been devastated. It's It's selfish to even worry about the United States when there's no risk, so don't scare anyone and don't worry about it. You're safe. It's it's fine. Well, obviously this is a dream, and obviously the worst-case scenario that we were discussing is playing out in full motion, and all of the experts are wrong. They're lulling everyone into a false sense of security, and this devastating tsunami is going to wipe out the entire eastern seaboard in a matter of hours. Now, that's not to say that every individual in a position of authority 
has this misguided view. There, I remember in my dream, I was connected and I was desperately trying to follow this, you know, panicking. There were other experts, I think even within the government, I think the USGS or something, and then independent scientists and research who were, researchers who were saying, these are false assurances and you are lulling people millions, tens of millions of people to their deaths. It might cause panic, but if it's giving people this precious time to evacuate, they need to right now. They need to play this better safe than sorry. As time was progressing, then the reports started coming in, you know, from some of the uh, coast of West Africa that was being all of a sudden devastated by these massive waves. A little bit more unease was beginning to settle in, you know, amongst the passengers of this ship. And then, of course, the attitudes of the United States populace in general. And what did the powers that be do? Did they relent? Did they express any concern whatsoever for their citizens? No, they did not. You know what they did? They doubled down. And they said, don't worry about this. Our research shows otherwise, and saying that it's going to impact the U.S. in this catastrophic manner is only going to lead to panic-filled evacuations, it's going to cause fights, it's going to cause road accidents, and it's going to lead to more deaths than any potential impact, which is not going to even happen, you know, because they were adamant that it was going to be a foot tall by the time it gets to the coast, whatever cause. So anyone saying that there's any danger here is disseminating deadly, remember they said deadly misinformation. And they doubled down. They instructed all of the social media sites to begin blacklisting certain terms, to just completely ban people who are saying that there is a risk and we're just all of a sudden rapid fire just within the span of hours, you know, obviously phone calls were being made and who knows what backroom deals were going on and we're just deplatforming and banning indiscriminately anyone who expressed any concern that this tsunami could wipe out all of these areas. It's just an utter disregard for the safety of the populace, and they just had their notion, and they ignorantly dug their heels in. Now, at this point, I was idly, you know, standing by and just in a state of shock. I tried to take the incentive, and I too tried to go ahead, and I, I thought to myself, well, with everything that I believe, I think that this worst case scenario is going to play out. You know, it's just, I know that you have experts and professionals on both sides giving legitimate, seemingly legitimate cases for one or the other, but the timeline is just completely, it's, it's just all coming together. If this is the way that I think it is. I'm probably going to be dead in a couple hours. 
I, as a result, am going to take the incentive and with whatever platform I have, I'm going to try to get a word of warning out. And if it even gets a small handful of people sprung into action who heretofore wouldn't have, that's all that matters. And if I wind up being wrong, and if I generate a minor panic as a result from whatever I contribute, and I scare people, and I lose the YouTube channel and everything, well, that's my mistake and I have to live with it. So I quickly grabbed the camera, made a, made a short video, I tried to make posts to, you know, Twitter and Instagram, and those were pretty much shut down immediately, and the accounts were just deleted just like that. So that really didn't work. I was able to make a video for the YouTube, very, very basic, you know, because time was of the essence. And I uploaded it, and maybe, you know, it, it maybe stayed online for about a half hour, and about 20,000 eh, 20, people saw it. And then YouTube deleted it and shut down the account. And at this point, I really had nowhere to go. So I grabbed the microphone, recorded just a short message and was able to get a connection and, and get it sent out via one of the shortwave stations in the United States. And even there, I wasn't sure how many people were listening and of the people who even picked up the broadcast, how many of them even agreed with the message. But I was just trying to do whatever I could, you know, within my abilities. And having exhausted every avenue, I pretty much, you know, accepted fate, and I said, well, now comes the waiting game. I've done what I can. Everyone seems to have their mind made up already, and, well, whatever happens, happens. A few tense hours continue to pass, and by now it's mid-afternoon, I get out of my little cabin and, you know, go to some of the upper decks and, you know, just trying to see what the general consensus amongst the passengers are. And, you know, I would say it's like 95% are convinced this is nothing. With, you know, a tiny, tiny minority thinking otherwise, who are pretty much equally despondent as me at this point, and I'm just kind of, you know, seeing what their thoughts are, etc. Well... We're standing there kind of, you know, looking out over the, the ocean, because, you know, again, these ships are huge. They're towering above all of the, you know, above the sea, the sea level. And all of a sudden, a couple people on the deck are starting to point at the horizon, and they're saying, look at that, what is, you know, you're starting to hear a, a stir. And what is it, you know? What is it? What do, you, what do you see on the horizon? They're starting to get closer, but... A single, absolutely massive wave from one horizon to the next, as far as the eye can see, coming in. And at that moment, you know, I knew, well, this is... Well, this really is... This is how it's going to be.
I mean, yeah, I guess I was right, and so were some of the other experts and all of that, but it was just this complete sense of despondency because not only was this likely going to be the end for me, but thinking about all of the people who were misinformed and what is going to be awaiting them, and this wave, you know, it's coming in fast. Because obviously tsunamis, you know, they do move at a decent clip. This thing had speed, and it was huge. And as it's getting closer, you know, you're able to really see the whole... the, the size of it. I would say that this wave, it was big. It had to be, you know, maybe 250 feet tall. It was even taller than what the worst-case scenario said. It was even worse than that. And what my plan was is that, you know, this is... Look, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and that's it. But this is a big ship. Maybe there's the slim chance that it'll be able to ride this wave and somehow get through it. I mean, sometimes these ships, you know, they can certainly take a beating. So with whatever time I've got, I'm going to try to run back to this cabin because it's an interior room. And right now I am not overly concerned about the ship suddenly sinking, because if it does, it does. That's an inevitability otherwise. And there's nothing I can do about that either way. But... Maybe isolating myself will lessen the impact a little bit and make my chances at least a little better. Because again, there's no windows, I feel like I'm kind of shielded, it's an interior room, etc. So as I'm making my way off the deck, and at this point, running back to this room, because I've only got probably two minutes or so, you know what everyone else is pretty much doing? They're running onto the top deck, almost packed together shoulder to shoulder with their phones to try to get pictures and videos of this. So I'm able to make my way against the tide. I get into the room, I slam the door, and I just try to latch onto whatever I can, and I just think it's... this is it. All of a sudden, you know, you feel the angle of things beginning to shift, and you know, some of the small little items are starting to roll. So, obviously, this ship is starting to ride the wave, but it makes it up. It makes it up quite a bit, but not enough. It's just not enough. This giant tsunami wave smashes over the top of the ship. It wasn't enough to submerge it, but with such force, washes over the entire top decks, pretty much smashes every single window. Of course, all the electronics get flooded, so all the lights go off. And I think I even got thrown into the other wall just because of the, the force of the impact, you know. <laughs> My grip was only so good. I'm just getting rattled all around, and this this ear-piercing, you know, I don't know, kind of grinding noise, and just the sound of, you know, a huge crash. And just the force of the impact, you know, and you realize then, you know, that all the folks, of course, on those upper decks, they're gone. I mean, it's, they got, they got washed away. 
after about a minute, you know, I am all bruised up, but thankful to be alive, and all of a sudden, you know, the emergency power kind of through some emergency generator, I guess, is able to switch on and open up the door and start looking around, and I'm, I'm okay otherwise. I was able to ride it out. I'm making my way down the corridor. It's like a ghost town. That was the creepiest thing in the dream. There was no one else there. And I'm looking and starting to get to a more common area, and it's like there's barely anyone left. Because everyone who was out and exposed got washed away. <laughs> the force of the water just, you know, I'm sure in the last... A couple people might have made it, but a lot of people just got swept away by it. Because water is extremely powerful. Sweep someone away just like that. And eventually a couple other crew members, you know, started to emerge and a couple other guests. And obviously everyone was just in a state of shock and they were just saying, okay, you know, just try try to look for, you know, if you're okay, please try to help us and just try to look for anyone that still might be, you know, either hanging on or caught somewhere or trapped somewhere, whatever it is. Everything, of course, is soaking wet. There's broken glass everywhere. All the furniture and everything is destroyed. And, you know, you're not really getting much luck. I mean, there's like one or two people who are kind of wedged in a certain place and maybe have, you know, broke something but are still alive and trying to get them laid down and all of that. I ran back to my little cabin. There was no internet. I mean, yeah, there was the emergency generator, but that didn't account for Wi-Fi or any of that. But I still had my portable radio with me, so I immediately grabbed the uh, radio to try to figure out if this wave made it to the coast. And, of course, it did. I was able to pick up an AM station that was yeah, pretty much just saying everything is being destroyed and that it's not even, it's not stopping, you know, it's just, it's, it's going, and, I mean, dozens of miles inland so far are still being decimated. So, you know that this is the worst case scenario, and it's playing out in real time. Then I, I flipped over to the shortwave and picked up one of the European broadcasters, maybe like the BBC or something with probably, it sounded like it was like television audio being syndicated to the radio. And they were saying how they're seeing helicopter footage of New York City being destroyed. So you know right then and there that it's, it's everywhere that's getting this. Not just Florida that got unlucky. And you know, I'm kind of just paralyzed listening to these broadcasts and you know you're starting to realize that everything back from where you came is gone and that life is never going to be the same and i'm making my way back down the little corridor you know i was going to bring the radio back over to whoever was left and uh and then as if this dream couldn't get any worse right any worse and any more apocalyptic then Someone yells out, another one. I kind of glance up because I'm starting to get toward some of the windows again, and I, I look, and oh, no, <laughs> there's, another, uh, there's another wave coming in. 
and it's even taller than the last one. And this one is... It seemed like it's a little more gradual in terms of its steepness, but it almost seemed like it was starting to... You know, as it's getting closer and closer to the uh, the shore, it's starting to not quite break, but it's it's getting there. You know, it's getting more... getting steeper. And I don't know if these physics in terms of waves actually apply in the real world, but it did in my dream anyway. And it seems like it's just getting higher by the by the minute. I have a feeling, well, I guess they're gonna... If they even have control of this ship, you know, it's just gonna try to ride this thing as high as it'll go and try to repeat the last impact. So I just run back to the the cabin as best I can. By the time I even get there, it's already, you know, it's already starting to get at that bit of an incline. It's already kind of getting swept up by the wave. I close the door and I just grab onto this metal, this metal railing or whatever it is. I'm just holding onto that as best I can. This time the steepness is even higher to the point where I am almost hanging you know, vertically, it's like, you know, let's say this this railing is against the wall in this cabin. All of a sudden now, I'm it's at such an angle that I'm almost hanging off of the ceiling, you know, and the other wall is like the floor at this point, almost like at a 90-degree angle. And like it was the last time, it just wasn't enough. They tried to, tried to ride it, and it just didn't work. And it smashes. This time, you know, the impact is even more forceful. At the very least, I think I broke one of my arms and probably my shoulder and some other things in my side. I got really battered up, and there was this huge crack in terms of the impact, and things did level out eventually. This ship did survive the second wave, but you knew this was it for it. I mean, it might have just split the hole in two or something. It was This thing was going to sink. And I still had one good arm. I open up the door. There's water everywhere. It's you know I still had the wherewithal to grab the damned radio with me, and f- fighting through the pain because my legs were still working. I'm making my way back toward the front, and at this point I just don't care anymore. And you know this ship is gonna sink, and whatever happens happens. If there's another wave, that's it. But what does it matter? It's all everything's wiped out either way, and the dream ended with me listening to the radio, I think, which they they were saying that the second wave, although about twice as high as the first, was believed to be the final wave, but that the damage is essentially catastrophic nearly everywhere on the East Coast. And, you know, I'm just sitting there, I mean, lucky to be alive, very injured, but really no chance of an immediate rescue, an uncertain future. I mean, I don't know what would have happened after that, but just kind of realizing that, well, this is... things are going to be very different from now on if I make it through this. And, uh... And there's your dream. It's a real... (laughs) You know, it's one of those stories, though, to me... This was not a nightmare. That's the thing. Like, it might be scary to some people to see these waves. Um, but to me, I didn't feel any fear in the dream. I mean, there was some, but it was more like, I'm just going to try to do this to try to make it through, and whatever happens, happens. 
And honestly, those post-apocalyptic type dreams are more intriguing to me than anything else. So there you go. I thought that might be a cool idea for like a short story or something, you know, try to get this in better form. But yeah, tsunamis, you know, it's something I'd been researching a lot. I mean, I was reading quite a bit about the 2004 tsunami and then all the hypotheticals like La Palma. And obviously my mind ran wild with that and decided to concoct a, obviously a horrible dream that what if, you know, the worst case scenario of La Palma actually did happen and it was even worse and no one was prepared for it and you're (laughs) on a boat near the coast where the waves are probably going to be at their highest and, uh, yeah, good luck. You know, here's the dream. Now go go deal with it. So that's what happened. I mean, obviously in my mind, it was, I think, not only expressing, you know, my views about the mega tsunami, um, but also a few legitimate criticisms I have about a lot of one-sided views and, you know, this attitude where it's like, You shouldn't be allowed to either ask questions or have a differing viewpoint from the narrative. And if you do, you know, you need to be shut down and penalized. And uh, I think it's just my frustrations about that. You know, it's just kind of my mind's way of venting it out, I suppose. And, you know, saying, well, this is... This is what happens when you take it too far. But... Who knows, this is getting all psychological about the dream. I don't know. In my dream, it was just a horrible tsunami and just a horrible dream overall. Josh from Maryland is checking in, says, Good evening. I haven't emailed in uh, in over three years, but I've been a pretty consistent listener of the YouTube uploads for a while. I was wondering if you have tried any plant-based meat alternatives like Beyond Meat or Impossible Meat outside of fast food meals. Also, do you do any more cooking of your own now that you have your own space? Love the content and hope you're doing well. Josh from Maryland. Thank you, Josh. Uh, Sometimes I do. I usually just prepare small little things. You know, I know I review some food, but I am not a master chef, nor have I ever claimed to be one. So I don't really have any skills to flaunt in the kitchen, and uh, I'm all right with that. In terms of plant-based meat alternatives, uh, not really, no. I, I know that it might... This is one of those questions that if I were to lie and say, yes, oh yeah, I get it all the time, I love the uh, sausage links or whatever, you know the, you know what I mean, the, the faux sausage links, you know, the non-meat ones... <laughs> I know that that answer would have gone over better with the listening audience. Uh, The reason why I I say no is it's just how it personally reacts uh, to me. Uh, From the times that I have had the plant-based alternatives, I just take it that they are extremely processed, you know, because obviously you have to do something to it to make it taste so authentic. Um, but it did not react to my to my body well, and having multiple experiences with that, I don't know what it is, but it's just, you know, it clashes with me, so I just prefer to uh, abstain from that. 
Obviously, recipes could be tweaked going forward, and for the sake of reviews, I'll certainly, uh, you know, try out things as needed, but it's just my choice, you know, it's, this is just how it is with me, and you do you, I'll, I'll do me, but I don't have a problem with it, it's, it is amazing how they, how they get it to taste so realistic, it's crazy. So thank you for your email. We hear next with a short question from Caitlin. Says, I hope you're well. I was wondering if I would be able to listen to your shortwave radio show from the UK, particularly Scotland, so pretty northern, or is it just available to the US? Thank you from Caitlin. So thank you, Caitlin. Good question, one that I certainly get. So number one, let me load up a time zone conversion tool. I think I know the times, but I really want to double check because the last thing I ever want to do is give someone the wrong information. And let's load up uh, Edinburgh, right? So I'll convert from Florida here to, to that city. Now the reason, here's the little caveat before I give out specific frequencies. And I say this, I was even responding to a listener uh, earlier in the, the evening who sent in a query about shortwave radio and wanted the schedule and was saying, you know, I I live in the UK and I hope once I save some money to uh, buy one of the Texone radios to uh, listen to your show. Recent information in terms of reception tells me that the chances of being able to hear my broadcast overseas are low. They are not non-existent. And there are some frequencies that are directed toward Europe, and at least on paper should provide coverage, but the amount of feedback that has actually come in, you know, from on the ground, actual listeners in Europe is negligible. It's actually non-existent which tells me that these broadcasts are not reaching their intended target area at all. Um, I know for a fact that they are being sent out, and obviously all the broadcasts beamed to the U.S. I get inundated with correspondence from, uh, so obviously those are very effective and reach many, many listeners, but it's just something, I guess, about the propagation or what, uh, that it's going to be iffy. Now, there was one promising report that I got about a week ago from a listener in Scotland who picked up a broadcast, and it was actually coming in clearly. It is late at night, though, so, you know, but that does seem like the one airing that will reach you, but you got to be a night owl, and I don't know. It's just going to be iffy. Um, so if you want to take a gamble, go for it. I will list all the free, and maybe you'll be in luck. Maybe you're going to be in a location where reception is just better for you, because it sometimes can vary like that, and you might be shocked at how good it comes in. Like I said, I know the one late night one probably will, um, but everything else is just up in the air, and it's like a coin toss. Now, there always is the possibility that I can get a better signal to Europe going forward, so always consider that. And uh, this is just what we have. And I just say that because I don't want you, 
if you're really on the fence about it and you're like, well, I only want to get it if I could make sure I can hear it clearly at a good time, that's why I just say, look, think twice. Um, so it's up to you. Now, if you're in the United States, if you're in Canada, if you're in Mexico, if you're in South America, uh, you will be able to hear my broadcasts, no problem, multiple times a week on multiple frequencies. Uh, this is proven, and the response continues to corroborate those notions. Now, anyway, here are the potential times and frequencies, and like I said, just take this into account. The first broadcast could be heard at 2 p.m. BST every Tuesday on the frequency of 15770 kilohertz. That's 15770 kilohertz. This broadcast is supposed to be directly targeting Europe, and this one online shortwave receiver located in the Netherlands seems to get it with a good signal, but the amount of feedback from any listeners actually in Europe uh, is negligible. So I don't know how if it actually comes through or if it doesn't, and uh, I really don't know how results actually are, because it's just very iffy in terms of any reports actually coming in. So bear that in mind. It's supposed to target you, but I don't know if it really does. Uh, one broadcast by a miracle, if you want to try it, is uh, every Thursday at the time of 10 p.m. BST on the frequency of 7780 kHz, that's 7780. I honestly don't think that's going to make it in, but you might get lucky, that's why I said by a miracle. At the time of 1 a.m. BST, every Friday, you can try the frequency of 9395 kHz, that's 9395. That broadcast is beamed over to North America, but... Sometimes it makes it into Europe, sometimes it does, but again, this is very, very iffy. Another broadcast you can try is, again, 7780 kHz at 10 p.m. BST every Sunday, which again is iffy, you know, I already, I already addressed that. The final broadcast, and this is the one with the best results, this is the one that I did get the verifiable report from Scotland recently, uh, that had it coming in very clearly, clearest of them all, easily. Uh, is the frequency, or I'll give the time first, at the time of 5 a.m. BST every Monday. So 5 a.m. BST every Monday on the frequency of 4840 kHz, that's 4840. Uh, that will get the best signal your way, so it's up to you. If any of those times and frequencies work out good, then go for it. Like I said, maybe 4840 it works out great. You know, you might, maybe you get up early and uh, this will be a perfect listening opportunity in the morning, um, but this is the best that can be done right now. For a number of months, I used the station out of Germany and you would think with the transmitter based in Central Europe, the coverage would be better, but it wasn't, it made no difference. And again, there were almost no reports from 
anywhere in the UK or Ireland from that station. So I just, I, I stopped those broadcasts eventually. And I, I, I felt that there was no one really listening. So I wanted to save the money and repurpose it to other broadcasts. So thank you for your question. Uh, this is a comment and a suggestion from a Canadian viewer. This is my first time writing in. I very often listen to the podcasts and watch the reviews, and it occurred to me that I could write in, but never thought to. Back in early 2020, my friend introduced me to your content, then I found myself binge-watching the reviews, then I found the podcast, and since then, I've been a regular viewer, and you also inspired me to get a shortwave radio. I listen in whenever I'm stressed and find your voice soothing. Anyway, I'm sure you don't want to hear me babble on all day, so here's my question. If you ever come to Canada, could you please review an item on the Tim Hortons menu? As a Canadian, I'm sure many of your other Canadian viewers as well would love that. Best regards. So thank you for your suggestion, the Tim Hortons menu. Yeah, Tim Hortons, for those of you who don't know, that's a famous... Uh, I think it's largely coffee and donuts, if I'm not mistaken. Though it seems like they do have other items as well. Uh, primarily based in Canada. And, uh... Yeah, very well known up there. I've been to Tim Hortons twice. I was there in 2007, and again in 2012. And I seemed, from my recollection, I seemed to enjoy it. So thank you for your question. Chris in Texas, sending in a couple questions. Uh, hope you're doing well uh, with the dental work. Love the podcast. Finally caught up with all the episodes. A few questions. Uh, question one. Your episodes about disaster preparedness have convinced me to get an emergency radio. Before I purchased one, I was wondering if you have used any of the models on the Amazon store that you would recommend, and in addition, do you know how good they are at picking up shortwave? Your enthusiasm for shortwave has gotten me interested in trying out the medium, but I want to listen to it a little more uh, before I invested in a dedicated shortwave radio. I was thinking the emergency radio would serve as a trial run if it picks up stations well enough. Yeah, that's a good that's a good approach, and certainly, I would say an emergency radio, even if it doesn't do the best job, you know, in an absolute worst case scenario, something is always better than nothing. You know, if if it really hits the fan and it gets bad, uh, you know, you'll be glad you have it. I have an emergency radio, and let me just search this up, because I don't want to give you the wrong one. Okay, so here's the emergency radio that I have. And I got this one because I do have a number of shortwave radios, but of course I wanted a good radio uh, that also had, you know, alternate means of power generation in case the grid went down or something, uh, i.e. in hurricane season, or, you know, if something else happens, right? You just want to have a way that you can still get uh, the news. And I bought this one. I, I was satisfied with the features that it had. And I have it sitting there. 
And I still break it out every now and then, and I, I enjoy it. I use it during severe weather, and I'm satisfied with it. The radio is called the Kato. That's K-A-I-T-O. That's the brand name. Kato KA550. That's KA550. It's called the five-way powered AM-FM shortwave NOAA weather emergency radio. And here are the features that it comes with. Uh, it's called the five-way because it has five different ways that it could be powered. Uh, of course, it could take AA batteries. It also, of course, has the hand crank dynamo generator, which is something that I was always... I'm always interested in a radio. I want one for emergencies that could have the hand crank that you can, you know, generate it with that. Uh, but it also has a solar panel that, you know, you could leave it in the sun and that can charge the battery too, which, you know, obviously they call it the sunshine state, so that would also be a good thing to have. It also says it has a 5 volt, I figure, uh, mini USB, and also an AC-DC wall adapter slash charger. So that's one thing. Uh, the USB it has also could be used as a mobile phone charger for both iPhone and Android devices. Uh, obviously, you know, you'd probably have to hand crank it, but give yourself a workout and get some power to the phone too in a worst case scenario. Uh, it has an LED flashlight, a red LED SOS beacon, so it flashes SOS in Morse code with a red light if needed, a uh, little light in the back that could be turned on as a reading lamp. It's a durable radio. It could certainly survive a fall, and they say it's also water-resistant, so that's also good, you know, in terms of inclement weather, worst-case scenario, you know. And again, in terms of the coverage, picks up FM at 88 to 108 megahertz, AM 530 to 1710 kHz, so the standard, you know, AM FM broadcast, uh, picks up, I think, all seven NOAA weather radio channels. And then the shortwave, it picks up uh, frequencies from 3200 to 22,000 kilohertz which pretty much it covers every shortwave broadcast band which really for an emergency radio like this uh, that's what you're looking for you're looking to try to pick up you know just the international broadcasters that might have news and information uh, for your situation so it covers all the broadcast bands on the shortwave which is important uh, that also does mean, of course, that you'll be able to pick up my show, too, if you want. It'll pick up all my frequencies, and over in Texas, my main frequency for you would be 5850 kilohertz, or since this is in megahertz, it would be 5.850, and uh, it'll get that. Uh, I have used it. The antenna, it says the antenna is 14 and a half inches long. Uh, which pales in comparison to how long the antennas on the Texan radios are. They're, you know, probably three times as long, um, but it still does a good enough job. It still picks up stations. I've listened to the shortwave on it, and you can still make out the strong stations. So, 
I think the last time I was really doing some serious listening on the radio, on that emergency radio, was maybe like three weeks ago. It was in the morning, but I was still able to pick up plenty of stations. I was alternating between a talk show from one of the, you know, mostly the U.S.-based stations, so from WWCR in Nashville, listening to some stations uh, from Central South America, was tuned into the Cuban broadcasts, some of the U.S. government broadcasts, but I've picked up further stuff, too. I mean, I still can get some of the European stations, etc. You know, it's not the world's best for shortwave coverage, but I honestly thought, when I got it, I thought it was going to be worse. And I thought, oh, with this antenna, you know, is it really going to do a good job? So I was actually pleasantly surprised at the job that it did receiving stations. So that's what I recommend to you. I'm satisfied with it, and I feel confident in it that it'll uh, at least get you through some of, you know, some disasters, etc. Some people like it, some people hate it, but I can only vouch for my personal experience Uh, you know, where I can say I was satisfied with it. So that's what I can say there. And I'm just speaking, as an owner of one, how I feel about it. Uh, Question two. With how versatile and far-reaching shortwave can be, why are FM and AM radio the more popular media? Uh, Well, for a number of reasons. Obviously, nowadays, it can be, you know, for lots of people who like their crisp super clear uh, audio, the shortwave broadcasts might not be as pleasing to the ears in some cases. Uh, as you know, you get some static, the signals, which I always I always like it when they do this, but I know some people don't. Sometimes the signals fade a little bit, you know, sometimes that's really quickly, and that's because the signal is bouncing around through the ionosphere, and it's traveling thousands of miles to reach you, so these are just some of the variances as it's making this journey, the fading, and that happens with every single broadcast, but it's usually not that detrimental. And uh, so some people, it's just, you know, they don't like how it sounds. Uh, The other thing is, because of the variables of the medium, certain frequencies work better at certain times of day. And I hate to say it, but you know you know how a lot of people are with media consumption. Uh, they like it really easy and really simple. So having to change frequencies at certain times uh, can make it a little inconvenient. Uh, the other reason here in the U.S. in terms of commercial radio, why none of the big networks have ever gotten behind it, is because... And I think this is a blessing for the listeners. Uh, You have complete anonymity in terms of uh, shortwave listening. No one knows that you're listening to whatever broadcast you're tuned into. Not a soul. Uh, So don't think for a second that anyone can track you down from this radio. They can't. Shortwave is one of the most secure mediums on the planet in terms of the listener's anonymity, that's why you still have some major intelligence agencies that still, even after all these years, uh, utilize shortwave radio for number stations. I mean, you think, for instance, if the SVR, the FSB, and the GRU in Russia, obviously they are sophisticated intelligence agencies, 
And they still trust in shortwave radio. They still send out number station messages to their agents in the field uh, to this day, to all continents. So obviously it's still working for them. And, uh, you know, Cuba does too. You've got, uh, what other countries still utilize number stations? Poland does, Ukraine does, Egypt does. France, to a very limited extent, still does. China does, North Korea does, South Korea does, Vietnam, Taiwan, and I know I'm missing probably one or two more, um, but just know a lot of countries still do. It's because, again, the technology is completely anonymous, so no way to track down who's listening, which, again, is good for you. I mean, in this day and age, it's like you can't ever get any privacy anymore. So I think it's a beautiful thing, and it makes me support this medium uh, even more. But advertisers, they want to know their audience. And they want exact figures. They want to know how many people are listening. They want to know, you know, because, mind you, all the surveillance going on these days is perpetrated by two things, the government and big corporations. You know, they want to know everything about you. So, of course, in terms of audience, they want to know exact figures and numbers, etc. Well, that can't be done with shortwave radio. You know, there's... No one's going to invest the money in an Arbitron survey or any of that. Uh, So, with no answers, there's no advertisers, no major networks, and it just doesn't... It's not corporate-friendly in that regard. Now, of course, you know, in certain parts of the world... Uh, shortwave is still popular, and in some cases it does rival AM and FM radio. Uh, the areas of the world where it is still extremely popular to that extent uh, remains much of Africa, especially East Africa, West Africa, a lot of Central Africa, uh, really Sub-Saharan Africa in general. Uh, although when you start getting into Southern Africa, uh, then the popularity of shortwave radio starts to... It starts to differ from country to country, and every country is different. Uh, the Middle East is, again, hit or miss. You know, some of the more war-torn areas, of course, still see it uh, as popular. Uh, Iran, as well, certainly has its listeners, as does Afghanistan. And then Asia, a lot of Asia, especially China, North Korea, Southeast Asia... Myanmar shortwave radio has seen a full-blown large-scale revival because of all the censorship after the coup, so that's that's the way to get news now. It's uh, If there's one country that's experienced an unforeseen boom in shortwave, it's Myanmar. And all the broadcasts, you know, all the international broadcasters are increasing uh, frequencies, and there's new stations coming on trying to target Myanmar, so... Certainly alive there, still alive in Bangladesh, um, but it is in considerable decline in India, though I'm certain there are still millions and millions of listeners, it's just declining by the day. And, you know, Central America, especially the very, or South America, my apologies, uh, especially, you know, think of the Amazon rainforest, uh, still heavily utilized over there, so... Still has places where it's hanging on and rivaling in popularity to the more well-known mediums, but certainly not in the, you know, many of the developed countries. 
Uh, the other thing, in the U.S., shortwave radio originally was taking off and probably was going to become one of the most dominant means of, uh, you know, the reception of information. So there was a time where shortwave radio was just as popular, if not more popular, than AM radio in the U.S., and that was from the 1920s up until World War II. And back then, pretty much, you know, because radio was the medium, it <laughs> was the main communications medium, pretty much everyone owned a radio, and those radios came with uh, the shortwave as well as AM. So you did have major broadcasters, I think like CBS and maybe NBC, etc., that all had stations on the shortwave. So what changed, and there were so many broadcasters in the U.S. at that point, it changed with World War II when the U.S. government, as a means, I guess as part of the wartime measures, uh, pretty much shut down all of the domestic shortwave stations and demanded that they be turned over to the government as part of the war effort. So all of the shortwave stations were taken off the air then. After the war, the stations were offered their licenses back, but most of them pretty much said, no, you know, you, we got kicked off the air, and with that, everyone stopped listening to us there, so there's no point in going back. We'll just stick with uh, AM radio, where all the listeners are. And uh, then you also had, pretty soon after, the uh, dreadful smith mundt Act, which was... I think that thing is so preposterous. And I think there's conflicting information, though, as to whether it actually was repealed or not, but if it hasn't, it, it really should be. That claims, oh, the stations on the shortwave can't broadcast domestically for a U.S. audience exclusively, which is why I say when I do the broadcast, of course, they're targeting the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, hey, I'm in the clear that way. But it's just ridiculous, you know, where it says, yeah, the because uh, we don't want the government to broadcast propaganda to its own citizens, uh, stations on the shortwave are not permitted to broadcast domestically for an audience exclusively in the U.S. I think to myself, especially today, today's day and age, give me a break. You know, <laughs> you're concerned about radio propaganda still to your own citizens? You don't care about the internet at all? Why not have an equivalent to that online? Maybe there is, but it's obviously... <laughs> You know, where do you even draw the line? It's just a waste. It's a complete waste. Just, if it's not abolished already, please do it already, because it's uh, evidently ineffective and way too restrictive. Um, so, you know, that pretty much, in terms of domestic broadcasting and any popularity it could have had, kind of died out right then and there. So for many decades, shortwave was only used in the U.S. for listening to the international broadcasters. And that all changed in the 1980s, when there actually was a, an effort to try to create some commercial uh, stations on shortwave. And, you know, with the Cold War and everything, a lot of people were interested in overseas news. Uh, so shortwave was still very much popular in the U.S. And you had two stations that came about, really. Uh, one of them was called WRNO in New Orleans. And they broadcast... Well, let's just, let's just look up their history and um, look at that. So it was founded in 1982. 
And it was the first privately owned commercial shortwave station in the U.S. It actually became so popular that it created a boom in shortwave broadcasting. In the early 80s, there were only three non-government American shortwave stations. By the end of the 80s, there were 16. It says during the 1980s, WRNO had a rock music format branded as World Rock of New Orleans, hence WRNO, and operated from noon to midnight daily. And they broadcast a lot of music. They also had programs, uh, I think, promoting uh, just, you know, the uh, culture of New Orleans. They did have some talk shows. They broadcast uh, sports games from, what's the New Orleans football team? The Saints, I think it is. And just lots of, you know, lots of uh, programming that was of interest to listeners. Even in the uh, 90s, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh, love him or hate him, obviously he was a huge figure in talk radio, uh, bought airtime on them. And again, they were just a very, very popular station. They had tons of listeners, and they were one of the few stations that did get mainstream ads. Uh, but, you know, eventually in the 90s, the station kind of changed hands. They started selling their airtime more and more instead of producing the in-house programming. Finances got tight. And WRNO is still around now, but it's just it's changed owners many times, and now it only broadcasts uh, Christian religious programming for a couple hours each night. Uh, another station that was on the shortwave for the 80s was a station called KUSW, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and that also broadcasts uh, a lot of rock and alternative rock music. Many listeners felt that KUSW had better music than WRNO, but their signal wasn't as good across the U.S., and they tried to also, you know, have a commercial format going, um, but they had to go off the air in the early 90s, and I think it was... TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, bought the station and held a big ceremony where they took the station's record library into the parking lot and blew it up with a stick of dynamite, which, yeah, you know, it's just how it is. And then, you know, the Trinity Broadcasting Network ran the station with just a syndication of their television audio, up until the mid-2000s, and they went off the air. So, anyway, I got carried away there. You know how I am with radio, though. Uh, not really a question, you also say, but a comment. I'm graduating... Uh, I'm starting graduate school to study... Herpetology. Hope I got that right. So I love to hear in the latest podcast that you appreciate many of the reptiles and amphibians found in Florida. One of my favorites uh, is the Florida sand skink. It is a threatened species of small lizards that swims through the sand. They have an elongated body, a shovel-like snout, and very tiny legs. If you've never seen one before, I urge you to look up. I urge you to look up pictures of them. I think they're fascinating and cute. Let's look it up. That is an interesting one. Kind of, it kind of looks like a snake, you know. But that is a very, very interesting. That's interesting. 
Yeah, I bet people. I bet people think that thing is a snake all the time. I'll keep my eyes out. Uh, out. I'll keep them. I'll keep them open for the uh, the sand skink. And if I if I see one, I'll let you know. And the fourth and final question uh, was in regards to the COVID vaccine, uh, which I and I hope you understand. I just can't answer that question. It's just a very divisive subject. I mean, you know how it is. It's no fault of your own. Number one, it's not like I don't have my mind made up. You know, my mind has been made up. And number two, regardless of what answer I give, obviously it'll have its detractors uh, one way or the other. But also, I don't want my answer to influence the actions of others. I just think that it's something that it should be... This is my same view in terms of the mask wearing. Exactly the same. It's just something that should be up to the individual. You know, it's... Give it some research in a uh, all-around manner, and then come to the decision themselves. That's all that I can say on that, and uh, that's just my two cents. So thanks, uh, thanks, Chris, out there in Texas. Interesting email, some good and fun questions. Uh, this listener who goes by the name DGM says, I notice that you place a consistent emphasis on timelines, I was wondering what it means to you and why it's so important for you to keep track. Uh, so thank you, DGM, for your question. That's an interesting observation, and that's something that I've never... I don't really have an, I don't have an answer for you, because that's not something that I've ever uh, consciously realized. It's not like I say that I just want to talk about time or timelines, etc., uh, you know, because I feel this way or that way or, or whatever it might be. I guess I just happen to talk about time a bit. I mean, it's certainly something that we all experience and we could all relate to, and it certainly impacts all of us. So I think that's just why I uh, sometimes address the topic uh, and subject uh, of time. Short comment coming in from Alex, first-time correspondent, just said, I wanted to thank you for making the necktie tying tutorial back in 2018. My wife and I are going to a wedding in about three hours. Of course, I made an oversight on the tie. Neither me nor my wife knew how to tie a tie, but after watching your video, we have changed that. Just wanted to reach out and say thanks. Hope you have a great weekend. Well, thank you, Alex. It means a lot, that video. Um, not a lot of people watched it when it first came out, and this is when the channel was being promoted extremely heavily in the algorithm, so I thought I really screwed up and did something wrong by uploading it. Um, but I'm very glad that it was of use to you, and uh, that, that means a lot, so thank you. And I hope, obviously this was sent a while back, but I hope the uh, wedding was enjoyable and uh, wasn't, wasn't too crazy or any of that. We've got a short comment coming in from Benjamin who said, uh, dear Bra, I just wanted to say, whenever I'm feeling down and out, your videos cheer me up, and your calming voice relieves the stress within me. I'm an 18-year-old teenager from the Netherlands. You probably don't know what country that is. In Europe, and I hope you'll keep making videos because I feel like you help a lot of people with your calmness and consistency. Hope you're doing well personally, and I hope that you're healthy. Uh, love and best greetings from Benjamin. So thank you, Benjamin, for your kind words. And again, it means a lot to know that these that these videos and these podcasts uh, help you out. 
I know sometimes, like I think I said earlier, I can get very despondent about the way things are, and it's how I honestly feel, but I know that it's not all doom and gloom, and, you know, sometimes even I lose uh, lose sight of that. So thank you for your kind words, Benjamin. In the Netherlands, I'm very familiar with that country. Obviously, I've never been, I've never been to Europe, but I'm extremely familiar with the Netherlands, and I mean, I'm familiar with, with all of the countries in the world. You know, I can kind of rattle all of them off, but, uh, but thank you. Benjamin checking in from the Netherlands. Our next email comes in from Melinda in Indiana, saying, Hello, Review Bra. I greatly appreciate you sharing your traumatic experience with the milk cult. It's an epidemic that few are discussing in the United States. One of the greatest traumas in my life was drinking banana-flavored milk in the dairy gulag. At least once a week, I will awaken in a cold sweat with the words, Got milk? echoing in my mind. On the topic of food trauma, I was curious if you've had any taste aversions or stories of food experiences gone bad. I hope all is well. So thank you, Melinda, for your email. Uh, I do. I do have a number. I think one of... uh, well, good video, actually, of mine that you can cite for more detailed information. Uh, let me find it. Let me just get you the name of it. Because I just, I lose track of the names of my own videos, quite frankly. This one I uploaded back in December, I think. It's called Some Food Disgusts Me. And that's exactly what it's about. Just some of the foods that kind of, you know, maybe I do have these taste aversions uh, toward. But one good example that I recall, uh, especially, what's the word that I'm looking for here? Wasn't necessarily due to how it tasted, tasted, but it was, you know how it is, sometimes it's mind over matter. Uh, Hot dogs, now, I'm better with that now. And my views toward, you know, hot dogs have certainly uh, changed, and they don't bother me you know, anywhere near as much, but there was a time back in 2014 where I, and I've told this story before, so I won't be too long, I had a horrible stomach flu, and the night that the virus really began to kick in, I had a bunch of grilled hot dogs for dinner, and that night, you know, around 3 a.m., I woke up and I started feeling really off. And sure enough, I started feeling nauseous and had to throw up. And of course, I threw up my whole dinner, which happened to be these hot dogs, which weren't digested, so you could obviously see them. And that mental connotation, you know, of the experience of throwing them back up, uh, you know, seeing them, etc., just, it made me... It made me very grossed out of hot dogs because of that experience, and it took me years before I could finally enjoy them properly again. Now, things are better now, but it it took me years before I could even, you know, eat hot dogs without being so grossed out by them. So that's just a good example of it, Uh, and there certainly are others, but again, I would recommend the video, Some Food Disgusts Me, where I, uh, I discuss that you know, in greater detail. So thank you for your email. Nick 
in Ohio is checking in. I would like to start off by letting you know that there are no large updates regarding my friend with ALS. I've gotten a new job since the last time I wrote in, uh, which was around the election. It pays significantly more, and being a trade has much more career potential than a dead-end job in the food industry. It has, however, required me to do a lot of traveling, going as far north as New Hampshire, as far south as Houston, and as far west as Denver. Remaining constant through my travels is the listening to your show. This has brought about a strange phenomena when looking back at prior episodes. For example, when thinking back to the April 22nd show, I not only remember what was discussed during the show, but also have an added memory of driving through Boston for the first time and what it looked like, since I was listening to the show at the time of driving through. I'd say for the past five episodes, I have a memory attached to them of where I was driving through or flying over. I felt the need to bring this up because it reminds me of just how much distance I have traveled over just the last few months. Now, per tradition, I must leave you with a question. Between two people who make similar content for the same audience, one being a new YouTuber who makes videos and content for fun and as a hobby, and the other being a new YouTuber who is seeking career or financial gain, but also has more money ready to invest in content, who do you think the algorithm would favor and why? From Nick in Ohio. So thank you, Nick. Good to hear from you. Boy, that's a tough question. And honestly, I would say that it is completely random because I have seen instances where people with the financial backing and the professional setup and everything uh, do not succeed at what they do, uh, whereas people who just really don't have much of a setup at all and are doing things more amateur, etc., cetera, uh, do succeed. And then there are many cases where it's the other way around. So, honestly, the algorithm is, it's got a mind of its own. You know, I like to think of it essentially as a random number generator. And you don't really know what number it's going to come up with next. So, I mean, honestly, either of them probably have an equal shot. And if it were a fair world, probably the person who makes the content for fun, because viewers would be able to have a sense that I think their content is more genuine than the, than the individual who is doing it exclusively for monetary gain. Uh, but, you know, this is not a fair world. And like we've established, the algorithm has a mind of its own. So I would say at the very least, both of them have an equal chance. And I would have to say it kind of depends metaphorically what side of the bed the uh, YouTube algorithm wakes up on this day. So thank you for your questions, Nick. Brandon from Ontario, Canada is checking in. Hello, review bra. The story about the milk ritual was fantastic. I was mesmerized when I heard it today. You're really good at storytelling, and I could always picture your stories in my head. Also, one question. You may have answered this already, but what are your thoughts about pineapple on pizza? Love the podcast. Been listening since 2019 on Apple Podcasts, and look forward to many more. So thank you, Brandon, over there in Ontario. Thank you for your kind words and compliment on the story. I'm glad you found it enjoyable. 
Uh, pineapple on pizza. I know some people jokingly kind of play it up and they say, oh, I either, I either love it or I hate it. Uh, personally, I don't care one way or another. And if someone wants to put pineapple on the pizza, let them, let them have a so-called Hawaiian pizza. If they want to put banana on the pizza, I don't care. They could do that too. Uh, you know, it's up to their, it's up to them what they want on their pizza for them specifically. You know, just don't force it on everyone else. But if they like the pineapple and they want to have it on their personal pizza, that's fine. So that's my take on it. I've never really had pineapple on the pizza. I personally don't think it really tastes all that great. Um, but it certainly has its ardent supporters and detractors, and I kind of take a middle ground position. As long as, you know, you don't say, oh, I'm going to destroy you unless you eat the pineapple on the pizza, I think we'll be okay. And uh, if you want it on your pizza, then get it. I'll do me, you do you. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon, again for your kind words. Let's find another email now. Uh, this listener said, I want to be credited anonymously. I recently watched your Dream Burger video because it was trending. I was curious and decided to watch your channel. It was very entertaining, even though I haven't had any fast food in years or planning on eating fast food anytime soon. I wound up on the podcast channel, and I've been listening to your podcast frequently while working. It's been honestly incredible. Besides just being interested, it has greatly boosted my productivity while working, and I've been having a lot of burnout lately, so it's been a lifesaver. So seriously, thank you. Can't put into words how helpful your show has been. A few questions. One of your podcasts mentioned that you like rock and other genres similar to it, but have you ever heard of post-rock? I'm a huge fan of the genre, and my favorite post-rock artist is Mono, uh, with my two favorite tracks being Halcyon, Beautiful Days, and Everlasting Light. I'm not sure if you'd like it, but I highly recommend checking it out. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, post-rock. Well, well post-rock I am familiar with. Uh, so certainly I will give that song a, a, a try. I do like my post-rock. I'm not a huge fan but I do like some of those sounds, so I'll certainly give it a shot. Continuing with your email, you say, Lately I've been playing through a remaster of a game I love called Near, that's N-I-E capital R, Replicant, and the game had a very dismal but beautiful story. The entire series is known for its plot, but one of the common themes is about how humans choose to engage in violence. In Nier, or maybe it's Nier, a replicant's case, one of the big ideas was killing because of thinking one is in the right, even if they are not, or if there are multiple sides to the story. I think the concept is very interesting in how it explores morality and philosophy, um, but the series is one of the only ones that I've seen handle these kinds of topics well. I was wondering if you had any recommendations for anything uh, that have similar themes. Regardless, thank you for all the podcasts and reviews. I'm looking forward to more. So thank you, anonymous listener, for your kind words and suggestion as well. I've never heard of that game, but I'll certainly look into that too. I'm not much of a gamer, quite frankly. 
um, but I'll certainly look into it. And right now I'm having one of those moments where I'm kind of blanking out, but in terms of any recommendations, if something comes to mind, I will get it to you in writing. Marissa in Phoenix, Arizona is writing in with a short comment. I just wanted to say thank you so much for the content that you put out to the world to see slash hear. I'm currently out on my own for the very first time and plan on heading into college sometime in the fall. Things have been tough for me recently, so wherever I go, whenever I go through a hard time, I like to tune to the podcast and let my mind run free. Thank you so much for reading this, and I apologize if any grammar was odd. Have a great one. Well, thank you, Marissa, for your kind words. And uh, I hope things do improve for you. Hopefully, you know, your journey in pursuing higher education will be smooth, successful, productive, and fruitful. And I sincerely wish you the best. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that this broadcast is helpful to you along the way. So thank you for writing, for your kind words, and I again wish you the best. So the show is getting a bit long, but I do want to get to some more emails. I certainly do. So let's uh, try to find a number of others, and uh, well, we'll just get to whatever we can today. We have an email next coming in from Robert. Let me begin by saying that I have now listened to every episode of your podcast. I know you often say that you do not care why people listen to the podcast, uh, whether that be to fall asleep or to get through work, and I admire that. Personally, I listen because you are one of the most genuine people I've ever heard speak. Whether I agree or disagree with you, I always enjoy hearing your opinions and outlooks on the world. You speak your mind and promote civility, which is a rare quality in 2021. I was hoping to ask you a philosophy question. My question is this. What is the meaning that you have created for yourself in a meaningless and absurd world? I realize this is a bit vague, but I view the questions as the main point of existentialist philosophy. Sorry for the long email, whether this makes it to the show or not. I'll be sure to correspond more going forward. Keep it up. Sincerely, Robert. So thank you. So here's how I interpret the question. Now, philosophically speaking, I don't really know what I am. I just am what I am, I guess. My intention for life is that I'm here. I'm going to be here for as long as I am. That might be tomorrow, when I die, or that might be 50 years from now. I really don't know. Uh, nor do I have... I'll just be here as long as I am, that's all. And in the time allotted to me, I hope to, at least to the best of my abilities, and I certainly have my faults, as we all do, to try to be an upstanding individual, to try to, to try to treat others with respect, kindness, try to live my life with dignity, try to contribute in what ways I can to society, and also enjoy the things in life that 
make me happy. Honestly, I think it comes down to the individual to determine what meaning their life has, but one universal trait that I certainly strongly encourage and try to promote is, you know, like you like you mentioned even, uh, civility, trying to be a decent person, to try to be, uh, be someone with dignity and be an upstanding individual. Uh, that's certainly something that I try to advocate very strongly. So thank you for your comment. Chandler is writing in next with an email on the subject of precognitive dreams. This topic came up a couple podcasts ago, and I immediately thought of my mom, who's have precognitive dreams as long as I can remember. The first one I ever remember hearing about was in regards to a plane crash in Washington State in the late 80s. I believe it was this, and you sent me a New York Times article from 1988, in which she woke up from a dream of being on a flight to Washington that crashed into the concourse, only to find that the exact thing had happened. The other examples are more mundane and personal, things like family of friends appearing in dreams to tell her everything is going to be all right, and then asking her friend about this family member and finding out that they were just diagnosed with cancer. I'm sure there are other examples, if I really pick my brain, but those three are the ones that immediately came to mind. I'm a fairly scientifically-minded person, and frankly, I have no explanation for this phenomenon. I don't understand why or how it happens, but it's something I've just accepted my whole life. Obviously, this doesn't happen every time my mother dreams, but when it does happen, it's pretty impossible for me to refute. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. I just figured you'd appreciate hearing a couple examples of something inexplicable. Take care of yourself, man, from Chandler. Thank you, Chandler, for your email. Very interesting. Those precognitive dreams have always been a source of fascination to me. And, I mean, who knows? Obviously, in your case, the validity is proven to you why or how this happens or what explanations could be offered. Personally, I just think that there is a lot out there that we still just don't know, even about our own mind, about ourselves, about sleep and dreaming and all of that, that we just don't know. Now, maybe those questions will be answered at some point down the road, but I think it's just really interesting. So thank you for the email. Aaron is checking in and uh, located in Ireland. Aaron in Ireland. Now, your question was very similar to the philosophical one, I think two emails ago, so I'll just lump them into the same category, essentially. I just don't want to give the exact repeat answer. So the answer to that question stands for this one. Um, but aside from that, you mentioned that you're a big fan of the podcast, enjoying the random discussions. It says, I admire the dedication to your hobbies and your pursuit of them without worrying about how popular or approved of they may or may not be. I wanted to send you a quick email to say keep doing what you're doing. So thank you, Aaron, over there in Ireland. I appreciate your words of encouragement. Thank you kindly. Ryan in Utah is checking in, says, Dear John, 
I enjoyed your latest podcast discussion on bucket lists. I've never been fond of either the term or the concept for a few reasons. One is that the phrase, kick the bucket, from which the term originated, is almost entirely lost in today's lexicon, and saying bucket list sounds ridiculous with this in mind. Another is that bucket list is the 2007 Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman film, which is not memorable enough to be immortalized in this way. These two points are minor compared to my biggest gripe with the popular term, My most substantial complaint is that a bucket list reduces the noble reach of fulfillment in life to a grocery list, and life means so much more than that. In 2013, I was working as a wildlife survey pilot flying a project in Montana. This involved flying a light airplane low over beautiful country and looking for certain animals for various reasons. The job in itself was what some have called a bucket list job, but I saw it as my life's work at the time. It was everything I'd ever hoped for up until that point, and I took great pride in my flying. My fortune took a turn when I was involved in a grisly plane crash caused by my own poor judgment. In the moment prior to impact, I had the realization that I'd screwed up and that death for me and my observer was a real possibility. It was a sickening feeling like nothing I have ever known since. We were lucky enough to escape death, but we were both injured, my observer more so than myself, and the guilt from that haunts me to this day. I feel like I was given a second chance, and I haven't taken that for granted. My outlook on life has shifted, And although I still have goals, which are important to me, finding fulfillment now comes from my relationships and my own personal growth as a human. I'd love to see Paris and witness a rocket launch, but neither would bring fulfillment. Being a cheerleader for my fiancé as he conquers his own challenges and raising our dogs and strengthening my own character are what I've found do it for me. I was lucky enough to keep flying, I've had many aerial adventures since the crash, but now I'm enjoying the more mundane life of an airline pilot. I'm happy with my career and still proud of it, though I hope it doesn't define me as much as it once did. Thank you once again for your thoughtful content, and I always look forward to new podcasts and videos from Ryan in Utah. So thank you, Ryan, pretty regular correspondent. Always good to hear from you, and uh, that's crazy about the plane. But you see, I've heard things like that before where, you know, an experience in those ways uh, was, I mean, life-changing, of course, and it puts things into perspective in terms of life. You know, it could it could change one's priorities and give one... You know, just a sense of perspective as to, well, what is really, what do I really want to get out of life? You know, it just puts it all into perspective, the, you know, the fragility of life. And, uh, you know, maybe the things we take for granted, etc. Now, obviously when I had my accident, that pales in comparison 
to a plane crash. You know, but, I mean, who knows what would have happened if I landed differently, you know, if I kind of landed more on my neck, and that's what hit the ground first, right? The, I think the outcome really would have been very different, and I might not have uh, been here to tell the tale. I guarantee, though, people on YouTube in the comments would have probably made fun of that relentlessly. They would have said, of all the things, you know, I swear it would have been a heart attack or something, and instead he fell out of the out of his attic and then died that way. It's kind of it's funny to think about. So thank you, Ryan, for writing in, and I'm glad that, you know, you and the Observer both made it through that, that crash, lived to tell the tale. So thank you for writing in. All right, this next email comes in from Veronica, who writes, Dear Sir, I discovered you when I was in my second year at university, and I've been enjoying your content through my better months. At some point, however, my melancholic state got so bad, I quit doing almost everything I once loved and nearly lost touch with reality. This year, I started actively trying to regulate my condition and keep track of my mood, as to prevent myself from falling in such a deep somberness again. In the last show, you talked about anxiety concerning your dental work, and it really struck a chord with me. I'm about the same age as you. I think we were born in the same year and month. Uh, but I already had one tooth removed last year. Uh, luckily, it was one of the back-bottom teeth, You'll pardon me for not using this proper terminology, so it's not visible. Still, ever since, I'm living in constant fear of losing more teeth. Recently, I noticed that the gums on one of my upper teeth have receded, leaving the root exposed, and it horrified me. Now, I know how vain and shallow it must sound, but my greatest concern is that the loss of teeth will diminish the quality of my visual appearance, and this certainly is what will happen. Now, the thing is, I remember when I was younger and wasn't taking much care of my appearance, people treated me really horribly. It was almost as if I wasn't a sentient being, but some piece of garbage devoid of any value. Perhaps my looks changed somehow as I grew up, or maybe the people around me changed, but I noticed a significant improvement in the way I am treated. Now, I'd like to think this happened because people around me are more mature, but somehow I feel that's not the case. It's a very sad, anxious existence to know that your only value lies in your physical appearance, and that once it fades, you will fade together with it. I'd like to know how you found the courage to be so unapologetically yourself, and what seems even more terrifying to me, to share your work publicly. I'm someone who's terrified of the criticism to the extreme. This is obviously quite detrimental for one's growth. I'd like to get rid of this excessive concern. Lastly, I'd like to say I admire you very much. I hope my English is comprehensible. I apologize for how unorganized and scattered my thoughts are. Best regards from Veronica. So thank you for your email. And I know it was completely coherent and easy to read and understand. Well, I understand that a lot of folks in this world are very, very vain and judgmental individuals, you know, it's... And it's a shame that a lot of people, regardless of what 
these days on social media, people say in various campaigns that try to be, uh, you know, pushed in terms of making people less judgmental. People just are how they are, and that's unfortunate. I wish it weren't so, but like I've, like I was saying earlier, in terms of my theoretical, at least as I view it anyway. Uh, degradation of society. I think it's one of those things that this is just how people are, and I don't know if it'll ever change. And I know a lot of people have made fun of me for my appearance, and I just try not to think about it because... See, for me, it did bother me for a while, but... The reason why it stopped bothering me, as did most of the other criticism, is because I was exposed to it so continually that it just got old, and you've heard it a thousand times, so what does it matter anymore, in the end? But I do remember one of the first times I ever started thinking about how I look uh, was... I remember I was at the bus stop once, was riding the public bus, and at the bus stop with me was this middle-aged uh, hippie, type guy, at least that's what he looked like, you know, he was big, and he had the big beard, and he just looked like a, think of like a stereotypical, like what you would picture a 60s hippie to look like, but middle-aged and a bit on the larger end, and that's what this guy looked like, and, you know, he's looking at me, and I remember I was, I don't know if he just didn't like me because you know, of my appearance, because I remember even that day, I was wearing a black three-piece suit, you know, and this was around 2013 or so, so the YouTube channel wasn't big at all, but I still kind of, I, I pretty much dressed the exact same way that I do now, you know, so I had a black three-piece suit on, and my hair was slicked back and everything, and I don't know if he was as judgmental that he just saw how I looked and just immediately assumed that I was this way, if maybe he just didn't like people who looked that way, I don't know anyone who, you know, dresses conservatively or whatever. But he looks at me and he studies my face, and the first thing he really said, he said to me, you got in a horrible accident or something? <laughs> I just shook my head and ignored him even then and there. But, you know, of course, later that day, of course, I'm sitting there thinking about what he said and all of that. But then, of course, I mean, obviously, people on YouTube, oh, they say all sorts of things about me, you know? They say I look like this and that and, know. Uh, you know, that you're hideous and you look like some sort of freak or something, and I mean, what do I care? I just am the way that I am, and uh, so be it. I don't I don't think about how I look, I don't care, and uh, that's all that there is to it. But I know that that judgment, that doesn't mean that just because I feel this way and that I don't care what people say that everyone else, it's just, it's just that way for other people. I know that it's not. I know that a lot of people in this world are very judgmental, so I, I imagine that certainly could be a scary feeling, and I do hope that there will be a day where individuals will refine judgment more so to one's character as opposed to one's outwardly appearance exclusively. Now, if there's any words of consolation that I can give you, and maybe you know this, maybe not, uh, but I've had two teeth removed. Both of them lower, you know, the lower molar teeth in the back. 
So I think probably might have been the exact same tooth you got removed. Who knows? You know, one of the lower teeth in the back. And one of them is on the right side, and one of them is on the left side. So I had two teeth pulled. They were removed at the same time. In early 2020, right before the whole COVID thing started, uh, so that was back in January, and those teeth needed to be removed. The one tooth on my lower, speaking in terms of my own mouth, in terms of my lower right, looking in, that would be the lower left, but my lower right, I mean, both of those teeth, honestly, was the same problem. They were just falling apart, massive, massive deep decay, and they were unsalvageable as the result of... Both of them were the result of incorrectly done prior treatment from a different dentist. And after those teeth were removed, I didn't really notice a change in my appearance from it. So if there's anything, I mean from looking at me just externally, I don't know if you would be able to tell that I had two teeth removed, but I did. And almost to kind of, you know, further relate to your concerns, there was a tooth of mine is located right in front of the lower right tooth that was removed, the other molar, that also had some problems with it and was told by the dentists that it had a guarded prognosis and it might have to be removed. But thankfully, that one endodontist that I was discussing like an hour or two ago, he suggested that that tooth get a crown lengthening procedure done, and that if, if that is done, the tooth could be saved. And I got all the work done, and now I'm happy to say that the tooth that at one point seemed like was going to have to be removed has a nice crown on it, there's no pain, there's no discomfort, it's in the best shape it's ever been, and I'm able to regularly use it for chewing now. So, that all turned out well in the end, but I'm very sorry to hear what you have to go through, and and I certainly hope for a day where individuals will be less externally judgmental. So thank you for your email, and I wish you the best, and hopefully if you do go to a dentist, for that other tooth, uh, hopefully they'll just have good good news for you. Uh, it sounds to me maybe, and I'm not. I'm just saying this through all of my experience <laughs> over the last year. That you might need to see a periodontist, which is a special type of dentist, you know, that works on the gums. So that's just something to research, and I, I wish you the best of luck. The next email that we have comes in from Ali, who says, Hi, John. Thank you so much for the latest podcast and responding to my email. It was an entertaining and interesting show, as always. This might be... This might sound odd, but before I write in with a question... And to interject, the reason why I'm responding to this on air is I guarantee other folks have had this exact same question. So I, I know you're not the only one, so that's why. I, I just wanted to answer it for pretty much everyone. Anyway, you say, 
I wanted to ask if you prefer that we listeners try to stick to less sensitive topics for the sake of the platforms you publish to. I know you spoke about the ambiguous rules and how you must try to navigate the uncertain rules yourself, but I don't recall you asking your listening audience to censor themselves or steer away from potentially sensitive issues. I ask this because I thought about writing in about two sensitive topics. One is expanding on the previous topic of terminally ill patients and doctor-assisted suicide with some information, thoughts, and questions for discussion. The second was my experience regarding COVID-19, which is not only a sensitive topic in and of itself, but my story involves some admitted bitterness and healthcare issues that might be upsetting to some, and I don't want to upset anyone, including listeners, your platform bosses, or you, so a less risky approach would just be to ask you if you have a preference, and I'd be more than happy to stick to lighter topics if it means less risk for the show and easier work for you. Kind regards from Ali. So thank you for checking in, and honestly... You know, my view in terms of information, uh, discussion, etc., is that I feel that you should have the freedom to be able to write in with whatever topic that you want to. And if the situation is to the point that I can't discuss it, I'll make that decision, but you have every right to go ahead and ask questions and suggest any topic that you would like to discuss. And more often than not, even if it's potentially iffy, I still try to, you know, work it in somehow that it could still get incorporated into the show. So by all means, you can ask the questions uh, about, you know, perhaps euthanasia and also uh, your COVID-19 experience. So by all means, you know, in a worst case scenario, of course, I would either have to omit it, but both of those topics seem fine to me. And otherwise, they would just have to, if I feel like I can't really say what I want to say on YouTube, I'll just include those two topics on the other platforms where they would go out unobstructed. But honestly, I say send it in. Because certain things that are going on in the news right now, it just infuriates me. It really does to see this, you know, remember what I was saying about fluid situations and how things change? Well, it seems to me with a lot of these rules and rule enforcement that it seems like any understanding of the fluidity of situations completely goes out the door. And it bothers me when so many people and so many of these big, you know, social media sites had these certain rules and penalized people and punished you and really would give you, give you what for if you discussed certain ideas or theories, etc., only for these theories to suddenly start holding water and then start getting 
acknowledged by experts, and now all of a sudden you can talk about these things without getting banned anymore. But if something happened to you before this new information came out, you're still out of luck. It's ridiculous to me. Uh, one thing that I'm specifically discussing, that if they try to get me for this, I'm going to do whatever I can to appeal it, because, hey, I'm just saying what Dr. Fauci and the folks at the NIH said, so go <laughs> go bring this up with them if, if you don't like it, and ask them why they are saying this. But one subject is the origins of COVID-19. And now you're having these new statements coming out from the NIH, Dr. Fauci, the World Health Organization, legitimately suggesting that COVID-19, maybe it was made in a lab and maybe it got out of the lab in Wuhan. Now, I don't live under a rock. I knew about the lab theory if you would believe it, back in January of 2020. But do you know the amount of hell I would be given if I went on this broadcast and said that while it's unknown, there certainly are some interesting discrepancies and theories about the origins of COVID-19. And if you start looking at this data, which again, I was aware of in early 2020, uh, that there certainly are some startling pieces of information surrounding that lab in Wuhan, maybe it did get out. But if even just reading listener emails about COVID-19 got me in trouble, then even bringing up such a subject like that is, oh, forget it. I would have been, they wouldn't have even given me, given me the strike. They would have just shut me down. In the end, I mean, where did COVID come from? I don't know. I don't know, maybe it was natural, maybe it did happen. It was just a bat-born coronavirus that maybe it, ju it, it just emerged in the wild. Or maybe there was a leak at the lab, you know, maybe. Either some sort of royal screw-up happened, or then you have to start exploring the, you know, the intent. And who knows, if things continue to go that way, we might be talking about another supposed conspiracy theory that got proven true. Like I said, the only reason I haven't even brought this up earlier at all uh, is you know, because it you couldn't. But now that you have these professionals and major uh, organizations beginning to discuss it, now you can. But anyway, that bothers me because, you know, conspiracies and stuff, all of that has interested me. But so many things now, I just have to keep it to myself. And all it ever does is it bounces around inside my own head for months and months and months until I either forget it, or it gets to a point where now it's finally acceptable to talk about it without consequence. So that's just an example, but some topics and situations, I certainly keep... I keep my eyes on them, even in the long term, because some things can change just like that. Now we can finally have honest discussion and debate about the origins of COVID uh, without the risk of, at least hopefully, being shut down. At the very least, I think there's some 
good justification to directly argue against it, you know, as to being shut down for rule violation over this, because one of the rules is, you know, you can't go against the health experts. Well, the health experts are saying this, so what are you going to do? <laughs> right? But no, write, write whatever you want, and I will certainly try to the best of my abilities to work with you and get your thoughts and questions on the air. That goes for any listener. So thank you for your email, your kind words, and your question-related questions. And with that, I think, unfortunately, I'm just kind of at the end of the line at, at this point. I, I don't know what it is. I'm just starting to not feel the best. And I think I'm just going to have to kind of call it a day. There were more emails that I wanted to get to. What I couldn't, I'll either try to save for the next show and maybe tentatively reply to reply to them, you know, in writing. I feel like I'm letting everyone down, but, you know, I guess you could only do, do as much as you can. So uh, hopefully in the next broadcast, we'll be able to get to some more emails. Any feedback, once again, is welcome at V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. All right, everyone, until next time, be safe, be healthy, and I wish you all the very best. Take care. This is V-O-R-W.